In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to Thee, our God, glory to Thee, Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. O treasure every good and bestower of life, come and dwell us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O good one. God's help and, and the help of St. Nectarius, we have now come to part five, and this is the last part of the life of St. Nectarius of Pantopolis, who reposed in 1920, so less than a hundred years ago. And as, I, as we've noticed that this is one of the greatest Orthodox saints of our of the last century, a saint that's lived close to our times. Now, I asked myself, why did I do so many talks on St Nectarius, which means with today, God willing, if we finish it, it will be close to 20 hours of talk. Well, it was meant to be a shorter, talk, shorter maybe a couple of talks, not to go to five parts, but the more I was preparing, the more it just started to expand and there was such great things. And then I thought to myself, I think it's good for people to hear a life of a saint in detail. Because a lot of times people read lives of saints which are short, which is good as well, but to listen to the life of a saint, to actually read or listen to the life of a saint in such detail helps us to understand Orthodox Christianity. Because without the lives of the saints, how are then we going to know how to lead a spiritual life? How are we going to know how to be saved? The Protestants, of course, they, have, they don't want any lives of saints. They don't believe in the saints because they are saints, they say, and therefore they don't want them, they don't pray to them, they don't imitate them, and that's why they're a mess and they, and they don't even know, and they say that we interpret the Bible as we want. But in the Orthodox Church, we don't interpret the Bible as we want. We, we, we look at the Bible, the explanation, as given to us by the Holy Fathers of the Church who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. In this talk, which is about the writings and teachings of St. Nectarius, I will be 
going through some of the books that he, that he, and some of the teachings that he gave the church. And during that time, I will also bring up some parts of the life that I've already mentioned as a, so it's like, it'll be like a bit of a summary as well today. As we know, St. Nectarius had a zeal to be a preacher of the gospel. St. Nectarius wanted to save souls. And from a young boy, that's what he wanted. But he was poor and he found that very difficult. But with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Through miracles, as, we, as we've heard in the previous lives, a rich man wanted to send him to the University of Athens there to study theology. And he did. And in, 19, in 1885 is when he graduated after studying there for, I think, four years. He was 39 years old. In his last year of his theology degree, that's when he started for the first time to produce his own writings. He started with pamphlets. And the first pamphlet that he produced was called Concerning Faith. And the second pamphlet was called Concerning Confession. And the third pamphlet on the subject of Holy Communion was called Concerning the Divine Eucharist. Now, it's interesting. We don't say, when we read something, we go, okay, his first one was that, his second one was that, his third one was that. But what we need to do is we need to study and exert our brains to actually look and say, well, well, let's look at, it's interesting to see what was his first pamphlet? So we can get into his, an understanding of the saint. His first one was concerning faith. Because without faith, then there's no spiritual life. There's no um, orthodoxy, as we say, for ourselves. So he starts off his very first book, very, very first pamphlet, concerning faith. Now we can say that we have faith, but a lot of times our actions show that we don't have faith. So we can come to church and we can say Christ is risen during the, on Pascha night and for the 40 days. And yet, when someone dies close to us, we collapse and think, well, that person's gone. So therefore, if Christ is risen, which means we're going to rise from the dead, then why are we hopeless? So that shows that our faith is not real. So his first pamphlet, Concerning Faith. The second one, interesting, that once he goes to Concerning Confession, he, and we're going to look at it a lot because I'm going to read a lot from his books on confession. The second one on confession is important because without confession, how are we going to enter the spiritual life? How do we come towards Christ? And we saw St. John the Baptist was confessing those who were coming to him as a preparation for Christ. So how can, if we don't confess our sins, 
then how can then we unite with Christ? So that's important as well. First faith, then confession, and then after confession, where did he go? His third pamphlet on Holy Communion, on the Divine Eucharist, which he believes strongly in, which we'll come to that. I'm going to read you a lot of things from those, another book that he did later on, a more uh, detailed book. Now, let's look at the, some parts of the third pamphlet on the topic of Holy Communion. Firstly, St. Nectarius calls it the highest of the mysteries, the highest of the sacraments, in other words, and the most necessary for man. Now, why is that important for us? Because a lot of people don't commune. He says it, it, he calls it the highest of the mysteries and the most necessary for man. If it is the most necessary for man, then why do people keep away from it? In this pamphlet, he explains, one, why we should partake of Holy Communion. So he goes through all the details of that. Part two, how one should prepare for Holy Communion. Part three, the benefits one receives from Holy Communion when received worthily and four, how one should conduct oneself after receiving Holy Communion. That's his four parts. So it's interesting and remember he was still a deacon when he was uh, at the University of Athens on his la in his last year. In the same year, still while he was a student, he published another seven pamphlets I'll just say some of them. One of them was Sermon on Great Friday. He wanted to explain to people what is Great Friday because people go to the sun. They know that Great Friday is when there's a nice um, table in the middle of the church with flowers and a, a, like a, a burial shroud. People know that's what it means, but what exactly? So he wanted people to understand. Another one was Concerning Repentance. Another pamphlet was concerning the love and worship of God. Another pamphlet was concerning patient endurance in afflictions, that when we are afflicted in sicknesses or persecutions or whatever, to patiently endure. And another one was the study of the soul of man and the animal, which we'll see why he did that, because he did another book later on. The study on the soul of man and of the animal, because obviously even today there are people who say that the animal and man are the same. So that's why he did that. After he completed his studies in Athens, he actually then, as we remember, he went to Egypt. So obviously he finished his studies earlier on somewhere in the year, and then he, when he went to Egypt, he actually published his first book. And his first book called, was called Ten Sermons on the Great Lent, where he, he, he went through all the different Sundays of Great Lent and all the different uh, occasions of Great Lent. Again, why did he do that? Because he wanted the people to know why they go to church, what is the feast day, what does it mean when we have Great Thursday when 12 gospel readings are read and what's Great Friday, and what's Great Saturday, and what does Pascha, and all these things he wanted people to understand. His zeal was to bring people to the understanding of orthodoxy, because the more one understands, the more one has knowledge, the, one, the more that a person can 
come closer to the church because ignorance, when you just sit in church um, in ignorance, it's not good. Two years later, in, in 1887, after he had received the office of Archimandrite, that's when he became a priest, he published in Cairo a pamphlet called Two Sermons. The first sermon is called Concerning Faith Again. He writes in there, one part of it that, that he wrote, he says, we should prefer the afflictions that go with the promise of salvation to the life of luxury. We should order our actions with reference to our faith. We should believe in the reward in heaven and the punishment in hell. So that's just one part of his um, thing. So he says that we should prefer to suffer on earth rather than to live in luxury because Christ promised that only those who suffer enter the kingdom of heaven. And he wanted to emphasise that. He also, as we said, he said we should order our actions in reference to our faith. Our life, lives should be according to our faith. Not in what the people of the world say, but on what the saints say, what Christ teaches, what the Holy Fathers teaches, what the teach, and what the church teaches, not what the world says. Unfortunately, today, a lot of Orthodox Christians get more information from magazines, internet, stupidities, and television, films, but not information from uh, their faith. And that's what St. Natalis is saying there. And also, the last thing, we should believe in the reward in heaven and the punishment in hell. I have spoken to a lot of people who go to church. Some people have been going to church for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. And as soon as I ask them, do you think about heaven, do you think about hell, they said no. I think that speaks for itself. The second sermon is called Concerning God's Revelation in the World. In this pamphlet, he says that there are two worlds, the natural world and the spiritual world, each of which has its own laws and operations. So we have the world that we see, that's the natural world, and there's also the spiritual world. Each world has its own laws, its own I don't know, uh, operations, it says there. One of the ways in which God reveals himself to man in nature is through miracles. That's why we call them supernatural. They're above nature. While, after he was exiled from um, Egypt, we remember that he went to Athens and he couldn't get a job even as a preacher and finally someone helped him and he got a job as a preacher and they appointed him as a preacher in Evia, which is an island near Athens, in 1892, during the time that he was a preacher at Evia, St Nectarius published a 112-page book called Holy Memorial Services, in Greek, Mnemosima, or Panahides in Slavonic. In this book, he gives six arguments. Firstly, he writes a lot in this book, but in one, in one part, he gives six arguments for the immortality of the human soul. Why? Because people at that time, as now, 
don't understand that their souls are immortal. If we understand that our souls are immortal, that we don't just end at the grave, that will help us to lead our life according to the church's teachings so that we can be saved. Because why would someone want to lose their soul in the next life? So St Nectarius emphasises that our soul is immortal. It lives forever. The Jehovah Witnesses say that the soul dies. But that's not true. Some other people, unbelievers, say that when we die, we die finished, like the animals. That's their business if they want to be equal to them. But that's not what we know, and St Nectarius himself uh, emphasises with six arguments. I'm not going to go through all that now. He also presents the teaching of the Orthodox Church concerning memorial services and their value by quoting from the canons of the Apostles. So St Nectarius says, memorial services is Orthodox because it's the, the Apostles mention them in their, in their canons. The writings of the fathers of the church, they mention the memorial services. And even in the ancient liturgies, there is reference to that praying for the dead. Those of you who remember Talk 29, I dedicated to that of praying for the dead. And I went through the apostles, the holy fathers, the church, recent elders, saints from a few centuries ago, saints from centuries before. So it can, I can show you that throughout the 2,000 years of the church's history and, and in the Old Testament, there is uh, that teaching that we pray for the dead. He also criticises, St Nectarius, the Roman Catholic and Protestant churches for their errors regarding holy memorial services. Now, there are people today, and unfortunately even some priests, who say that we're not allowed to judge. So today, the devil's message is don't judge. Those of you who watch television and those of you who read a lot, some of you will notice that there is this message that's been hit throughout the world and the message is you've got no right to judge me so that is the teaching of today because the devil doesn't want people to be censured to be reprimanded to be told that what they're doing is wrong so today everything goes of course pedophilia still doesn't go but who knows, it's getting there, the age is lowering, lowering, lowering. And that type of, that type of um, slogan, don't judge, don't judge, is becoming more and more and more throughout the world. Can't judge anything anymore. And yet we see here the this, Saint this Saint Nectarius who criticises the Roman Catholic and Protestant churches for their errors regarding holy memorial services. Because the Roman Catholics, they've, which we're going to see later on, they've gone to 
they've introduced things which aren't orthodox and never was part of the churches, even when they were together with us for the first thousand years. Those teachings of purgatory and other things, then they don't, we never had them. And the Protestants just say, we don't pray for the dead because that's it. Once you die, it's locked in. Whatever, however you die, that's the way you are. If you died with sins, you go to hell. That's what they say. Or everyone's saved. That's another, that's another one. However, as I said before, there are some modernists today, some priests, who say that we're not allowed to speak anything against the heterodox. It's not nice. And to some extent, that's correct. We live in a country which is more heterodox than other, other faiths. We don't go around and call names and things like that, but it doesn't mean that when their teachings are, are influencing Orthodox Christians, that priests shut their mouths and say nothing. All these films about the life after death, there are so many things that are out there. Actually, even America, some woman, Barbara Walters, who is a, a very popular um, person over there, she did some interviews on, we spoke to different people of different religions on the life after death, getting all their different opinions, and that she actually said in there that uh, people won't give up the belief in the life after death. A lot of them don't. They still want to know what happens after. And that's why Hollywood entertains with these stupid films that they, that they produce of things with life after death, which they're all wrong. But people want it, they want to know, they want, they, and that's what they, they have a thirst to know about it, so they, go, they get their information from these films where paradise has got buildings and it's, what well, I mean, um, there's all, all these things and that people are allowed to come here and talk to people. There's all these shows, Ghost Whisperers, all these other supernatural, all these shows to do with uh, dead people appearing, talking to dead people, all those things. Why? Because people are interested in that. And yet we as Orthodox have the complete truth regarding the soul after death. I have a question. If Orthodox Christians are being influenced because of the television and the films, etc., and their being and their understanding of the soul after death is being distorted by these films and information, how often do we hear the clergy pre preaching during their sermons? And enlightening people about this about these matters and saying this is wrong. See, it can come across. You can say, "Oh, you're being judgmental." But you have to ask yourself, who's saying that? You or the devil? In 1892. Also during the time that he was a preacher at Evia, St. Nectarius published a book called The Ecumenical Councils of the Church of Christ. There are seven ecumenical councils we know. In this book he wrote 
I just chose one little part. There are truths in Christianity that are above our intellectual comprehension, incapable of being grasped by the finite, in other words, the limited mind of man. So St. Nectarius is saying that there are truths in the Christian faith that our minds, our intellectual minds, the same minds that we use to work out things of, of every day, cannot be grasped by our limited mind. Now, what's that got to do with the ecumenical, count, uh, ecumenical synods of the Church of Christ? So when I found this, I go, what's the saint, why did the saint write this and what's that got to do with the ecumenical synods of the Church of Christ? And I thought about it and I came to the conclusion that the heresies that these ecumenical councils denounced, the first ecumenical council, the second, all the heresies that, exist, that went through uh, those, uh, and they had to have those councils, is because people try to understand the dogmas of the church with their brain, but not with the Spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit, which only comes in a person who is humble. A lot of these people were intellectually proud. And they believed, like many do today, that with their minds, the same minds that they work out algebra and science and geology, etc., and economics, with that same mind, they can work out the things of, of theology, of the deep mysteries of the church, of the, of, of the dogmas. But when that happens, the people fall into deception and heresy. And that's why St. Nectarius... Is, is, is saying that. I remember one uh, bishop who tried to theologize on the, on, the, um, on the incarnation of Christ and the dope went to the point of, of actually saying and preaching that Christ did not come down from heaven without sin without sin, but that he was born with sin. So this is what happens when someone has what's called intellectual pride. Now, how does that help us? It helps us to be humble and not to delve into things that are beyond us. Now, for example... Have I, during the, how about talk we're up to now, 53? This is talk 53. How many of those talks were dogmatic, like you hear a lot of talks today, priests doing these really deep talks to people who, after that, go home and watch TV? So you can't understand how they're doing these deep theological talks for people who are worldly even if they go to church. I have not done any of those talks because I have not the spirituality to delve into the dogmas of the church. I can say it to a certain level 
of what the church teaches, but I won't go into the depth of it. I'm too scared. That's why I won't do it. Because it's a blasphemy, as the Holy Father say, when someone tries to penetrate into the mysteries, into these, into these deep mysteries of the dogmas, with a dirty soul, with a soul that has not been purified, with a soul which is still under the influence of, temp of passions and tempta demonic temptations. So all of us, all of us are in that state. Nothing worries me more when a person comes up to me and starts talking about those type of things. I tell them to so I say, please stop. Don't go there. People buying books that are so deeply theological and then wondering why at the end they go crazy because, as the saints say, that can lead a person into, a men into like having a mental crisis and suicide or uh, becoming uh, a heretic or something, uh, falling away from the church. And on the other one, which some of you might have got offended when I said about that the priests do not speak about the things about the life of them, there's other topics too. Magic, astrology, mediums. This is all going on. I hit my head, I'm just saying, well, if that's going on and people are believing it, then where are the clergy to help the people and enlighten them? I just, uh, the thing, that's not judgmental. That's called pain. Because souls are being lost. And anyone who says, oh, that's judgmental, has no idea of the purpose of the spiritual life. Because Saint Maximus the Confessor, as I've mentioned so many times, says, what is love? Love is when someone is concerned for the salvation of another's soul. So Saint Nectarius, we see, he had love, and that's why whatever he did, he did for one purpose, and that is for the salvation of souls. If someone becomes a priest, they become a priest for the salvation of souls, not for people to kiss their hand, to show them honour, to have a big parish and have a lot of money. Priest, you become a priest to save souls. Now, Darwinism. One day, St Nectarius had a discussion with some college students who believed that, quote, St Nectarius says that this is what they said, the soul of man differs only in degree from the soul of animals, end quote. The saint could see that many in Greece were being influenced by the views of 19th century European scientists, including Charles Darwin. Now, that topic on evolution, I must admit I'm ignorant. I haven't researched it. I haven't got really much material on it at all. And therefore, I avoid it for the time being. I don't like talking about things if I'm not haven't got a, a, a knowledge, at least some degree, to be able to give a little basic thing. But, Saint, but because I found it here, at least it will give us a touch of how St Nectarius looked at it. Because, again, being judgmental, but there are today, even in the church, there are clergymen who believe in Darwinism. 
But the same people, they get offended if someone throws bananas at them. Because they say, why are you throwing bananas at me if I'm a priest? Well, because you say that we come from apes. So, in 1893, while still in Evia, St. Nectarius published a book called Sketch Concerning Man. This book shows that the saint was well acquainted with the teachings of these European scientists. He was particularly critical of Darwin. So because of this discussion that he had with those students and because he noticed that in Greece people were being influenced by these new, you know, these um, enlightened people of Europe and their teachings were coming into um, Greece, St Nectarius, because he cared for souls, didn't listen to people who say, you can't be critical against great scientists like Charles Darwin. He's famous now. No, he didn't do that. So, St Nectarius says that those who believe that man is the descendant of apes quote, these are St. Nectarius' words now, are ignorant of man and of his lofty destiny because they have denied man his soul and divine revelation. It's quite theological, but let's just go on. They have rejected the spirit and the spirit has abandoned them. So they rejected the Holy Spirit by having such stupid, stupid, stupid ideas and the Holy Spirit has rejected them. Notice that God rejects us when we first reject him. Because people try to say that God's unjust. No, first people reject him, then he rejects, as we'll see later on. They withdrew from God and the spirit has abandoned them. These are also Nectarius words. They withdrew from God and God withdrew from them for thinking they that they were wise, like I said before, thinking that they were wise, they became fools. If they acted with knowledge, they would not have lowered themselves so much, nor would they have taken pride in tracing the origin of the human race to the most shameless of animals. Rightly did the prophet say of them, then he quotes from Prophet David, I think, where he says, man, while in honour, did not understand but joined the beasts and became like them. Man, while in honour, meaning that man that is created in the image and likeness of God, did not understand that, no, didn't want that, but joined the beasts and became like them. Why I'm reading that is for people to understand, don't believe this brainwashing that's going on today that the saints were meek and they didn't speak, they didn't judge, they didn't speak up, they weren't strict, they were just full of love. But what does, what does the definition of love, what does those people mean by love? So love means when someone sees someone losing their soul, they sit there and don't speak, that's love. And this is going on in the church today, but that's not true. That's why you people that have been here now for so many months and have heard talk one, talk two, talk three, talk four, on St Nectarius can say, yes, this man was holy, 
was a beautiful soul, was humble, was full of faith, but at the same time, he was a lion when he had to be. We are meek as sheep when someone goes against us personally. So if someone says to me, uh, you're fat or whatever, take that. But when someone goes against the teachings of the church, then we have to become like lions. Let us not think that meekness, or sorry, that, yeah, that people who show themselves as being weak, we take that as being humble. As I said to you, when I went to Greece years ago, I, was, I, had to, I went to St. Spiridon Church um, in, in Corfu there to, to venerate the relics, and there was a wedding going on at the same time. And then the, there was the time when the priest goes around the table holding the gospel. And I noticed all of a sudden that the priest put the gospel over his face like this. I was wondering why is he doing that? But at only a few seconds later I found out that the, that the Greeks that were present at the um, wedding had those almond, the almond, what do you call them, kufetia, but in English, what's it in English? Sugared almonds, you know, they're like that. They're like, ro- like little rocks. And they'll throw in it uh, with full force on the priest. So he had to cover himself so he can, won't get blinded. But he continued on. He continued on. I asked him, why? Because oh, that's how they are. I prefer to stop the wedding, stop the wedding, leave them there, and then others will find out, they do that, then the food that they got at the hall will go off because there'll be no, mar- there'll be no wedding. Then they'll learn. But you see, people can say, but that priest is he's very humble. He's very humble. And see, he just took it. This is not taking it for personal things. This is a mockery of the mysteries of God. One is one, one is the other. One's personal, one is against the mysteries of God, against the teachings of the church. So St. Nectarius wasn't like that. Humble, yes. Humble where he needs to be. And with God's power, strong where he needs to be. So don't get confused. Now, in the next... um, Actually, we had one person here that came a few months ago who actually was saying that she doesn't believe in icons, doesn't believe in saints, doesn't believe the mother of God as Theotokos, etc. Once I found that out, we telephoned her. And we said, don't come. Because if you come, we'll ask you to leave. Finish, that's it. Some of you say, oh, what a horrible priest. Doesn't interest me what people have to say. What interests me is what God has to say. And for me to give word. Because if I know that that person's coming here and influencing people, she wasn't just said it to me, she was going around telling people. So she was a, like a heretic. So she was going around doing those things. So therefore, if I just sit there and be humble, supposedly, while she's doing that, 
then when I die, I'm going to give word. See, people don't understand what priesthood is. Today, a lot of times, the, the notion of priesthood is lost. People don't understand what priesthood is. In 1894, a short time after he left Evia, where he served as a preacher for two and a half years, remember he stayed in Evia for two and a half years, St. Nathalie published a book called Concerning the Results of True and Pseudo-Education. Concerning the Results of True Education for Children and False Education. This book was divided into three sections. In the first section, it was a sermon that he had given at a school, to a high school, and that sermon was then put into this, into this uh, book. The sermon was called The Call of Adolescence in Society. The Call of Adolescence in Society. In this section, he strongly stresses the importance of cultivating the virtues such as faith, hope, love, honesty, humility, obedience, patience, courage, kindness, gratitude, love of truth, moral wisdom, understanding, self-control, temperance, justice, Justice. He stressed that this is education. This is the 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 um the main part of education of children. To teach the virtues. He writes from in this book, he says, He who knows himself is never puffed up, never filled with pride. But first of all, he knows his shortcomings, in other words, his weaknesses, and faults, always comparing himself with the ideal prototype, with, 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 with um, Christ, in the likeness of which he ought to develop himself inasmuch as he sees how much he falls short of it. So St. Nectarius was teaching the students, was saying that they should struggle to acquire virtue. Where's that heard today? The parents, what do the parents say? My, my, my son got uh, 80, 90% for maths. My daughter went to university, Sydney University, make sure, emphasis, Sydney University. My daughter got a pay rise and she now is on 100, 150,000 a year. My child came first in gymnastics. But I never hear, sorry, it's just it's to the point of it does make me sick as a priest, I have to tell you, but you never hear much about parents to say my child ha um, uh, uh, has the virtue of honesty or love or faith or humility, etc., obedience. None of that. Very rare. Or for parents to come and say to the priest, Father, my child, I've noticed, you know, she's only or he's only four, but they've got a very bad streak of jealousy, doesn't like sharing. Now, for some parents, that's just a stage. But that's, that's not correct. Parents have to work on... on um, cultivating the virtues in their children from young. Teaching them that lying is bad. Teaching them how to help others, to be compassionate, 
to feel sorry for others when they are less fortunate than themselves, to share, etc. This is not much done. It's always the school and the job and the money and the education and all these type of things. And I had some dodos that came here and said, oh, that priest is against education. You know, the thing, it's just, um, and that's it. So when, even when parents ring me up, parents talk to me, I'm sure other priests would find the same thing. It's always how they're going at school, how they're going with their sports, if they've, whatever, but nothing about their virtues. So they could just yap, 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 yap for hours and hours about their academic achievements. And then when you say, but how about the virtues? They say, oh, sorry, Father, what? Sorry, I don't understand Chinese. Can you explain that again? Because I'm, I'm, it's, a, I, don't, I haven't learnt Chinese. Virtues. So why am I being harsh tonight? Because it's a catastrophe. It is a, it's something which has gone through the church, and virtue is not spoken of. It's a, it's work to cultivate virtues in children. And that's why soon, God willing, I want to do some talks on that. But before we talk about cultivation of the, to teach the, uh, how to help the children, the parents have to be somewhat spiritual. And before they can be spiritual, they have to actually even have some love for each other. So that's why the next talk, next, um, next month, God willing, will be um, uh, advice for parents... Uh, uh, advice... For, for um, husbands and wives, that's it. We're going to have a talk dedicated to husbands, wives, relationships with that. And later on, once we've established that, then we can go to the next part, which will be on the children. Children are not taught to examine themselves. For example, the child, you're in the, the, the mother, the father, in the house children running around, whatever. And while the mother is in the kitchen, she'll call out, John, you know, don't do that. You never share. You never share. Just, just shout it out. This is, the, child's, the child's already learned that whatever she says, I don't have to listen, and it just doesn't click with what the mother's saying at all. It's only when you get the child, sit it down in the room, calm the child down and say, you are not sharing. And sometimes while you're doing that, they're looking around like this, because they're not used to the parent talking to them. Now listen to me, listen to me, you're not. And then to teach the child what you mean that you are not sharing. And then when the child doesn't share, then you say, see, you're doing it again, look up, you're slipping again, be careful, struggle, teach the child to pray and say, ask God to help you to be more sharing because that's what God wants, etc. No, no. no. Um, maths homework, the English homework, all these type of things, that comes first. And then we wonder why at the end the children grow up to become like beasts. And I wrote here something, I go, children are not taught to examine themselves and end up blinder than bats. See, bats, they're blind. But at least they've got their radar. Sometimes they slip and you see them hanging from um, telegraph lines, but they're pretty good, their radar. But the children that grow up, 
in, and go through, go in life, they're not just hitting telegraph uh, lines. They are hitting. They're hitting their head continually. They have no skills. They have nothing at all. And the parents are pulling their hair. And what have they done? Number two, speech. He did another speech on exercise. In this section, he states that physical exercise is a necessary part of developing the total human being because a healthy and strong body can serve the soul in a positive way. Now, I love this part, and I got permission from the person who this happened. It's a good example. Someone rang me up and said, I'm, I've got some mental issues, some problems, and I said, you know what? I, I think that you're malnutritioned. I think that when you were, when you were being brought up, uh, your parents didn't feed you properly because whatever. So you just ate a lot of carbohydrates and sugars. I think your nerves have been really, you know, you need to take a lot of vitamin B. And the person was shocked. The person was shocked. So I rang you up for spiritual advice. That's not spiritual. What's vitamin B got to do with spiritual life? The person was offended, didn't listen. Eight years later, now she says, you were right, I've taken vitamin B and I really feel better. Well, where'd the eight years go? And the same person, after we discussed this on the phone and she graciously gave her permission to, um, to, to use that example, she reminded me and said, do you remember when you did the life of Elder Porfirios? I go, yes. He goes, remember that woman that she just kept on having miscarriages and the saint said that she needs to leave the house, the stress of her house, because she had like children and people were ringing her up and saying things to her and upset, and I think maybe it was her mother-in-law. And the saint said for her to go somewhere where there's no phones, and just rest. And then what happened? She was, she was able to give birth. So where's the spiritual there? Was there big things said about that? Read the gospel ten times? Did it talk about? No, the saint just gave a practical thing. People forget that we are not angels. You see, angels, because they're fleshless, they don't take vitamins. They don't involve themselves with their physical health because they don't have bodies. Some people believe that, some people are deceived and believe that spiritual life is pure spiritual, has nothing to do with the body. The Optina elders, I remember reading, which was wonderful, when, I, when people used to come to them with nervous breakdowns, etc., which a lot of people have today as well, the Optina elders would say to them to go to sanitariums, go to a health spa, relax. Get away, just just calm down, get just eat properly, you know, take some of those mineral baths, whatever they call those um, spas, whatever they not spas, the from the ground, you know, those hmm? not sauna, it's mineral, mineral water. Hmm? In the streams, yeah, where they've got springs, springs, yeah, that type of stuff. You know, and because some of those have got healing. I think like Maurice got them, I think. And, um, and, in, and in Europe they've got them. Some certain areas where there's water that comes from the mountains and things like that. And they get better. So where's the spiritual thing there? It's just a simple thing. People forget this. People believe that they can fast full on. 
They can stand all night in prayer like the saints did. They can come to church. They can put their children there and make the children stand for hours and hours and hours and say, no, it doesn't matter. It's like the children have no bodies. And this is all, this is all wrong. And that's why St. Nectarius actually did a speech dedicated and put it into, a, into pamphlet form or in, or in his book. Was it a book? A book? On exercise, the importance of exercise. Of course, there are some people that are sick physically, but laziness is not good for the spiritual life. Some people have said to me, um, they come to the church, they go, all I want to do is just read books. I don't want to work. just want to read books, go to church. And I say to them, no, um, I'm sorry, I don't cultivate freaks. What I do is that you go and get a job. Once you've got your job, then come back. Because I don't, I, that's not what I'm into. I don't like that. Right? People that don't want to get, don't want to work or they don't want to do things like that. Or people that are studying, they might be halfway through their degree and all of a sudden they change, they become religious and they come and they say, I want to leave my, my studies. No, because that then makes you... Um, that makes you like become irresponsible. So later on, you'll, that's why when people are studying and they go to, say, Mount Athos to become a monk, they go, I want to become a monk. I want to leave my study. I want to leave the world now. I want to leave and become a monk. And the spiritual father said, no, finish your degree first. Finish that first. But I read that such and such a saint, he left the world and this and that. But you're not that saint. This, number three, writing on suicide. In this section, he, dis he discusses the reasons that people are inclined to commit suicide, the ways of preventing or curbing suicide, and the church's refusal to bury suicides. Again, out of his love, and remember from the life that we did, which was the life um, part two, talk 50, we discussed there are a couple of suicides that the saint dealt with, and he helped them spiritually with prayers and practically where he helped them to get out of the situation that they were in. Some of them were being slandered or picked on and things like that. He actually went to the trouble to get them out of that area and send them somewhere else. Now we come to another uh, section. As mentioned in the life of St Nectarius, from seven years old, he kept a thick notebook, if you remember, and he would write down whatever beneficial sayings and teachings that he came across during his, well, what he heard at church in the beginning, and then later on what he read in the Bible and the writings of the Holy Fathers. And later on, as he got older, he even put in there uh, quotes from ancient and modern philosophers and poets and other writers, mainly Greek. He did this because he wished to produce a book one day. So great was his desire to help his neighbour for many years he wanted to publish his collection but was unable due to the lack of money. A lot of you remember that. He kept this, this book. I remember that he, was, he wanted to help people so much and even though he couldn't afford to publish that book, when he was working for that man in the tobacco shop, he would, when he would wrap up the boxes and the packages of the tobacco, then he would write on there, he'd get his book, open it up and write down all different sayings that he found and then, the peop then the, those people who would get those deliveries would then see that and he was hoping the saint that they would read it and benefit from it. 
So he didn't have the money to publish the book, but he thought of ways to help people. That's when he was 14 years old. In 1895 and 1896, during the time that he was dean, if you remember that he later on became the dean of the ecclesiastical school, St. Natalis was finally able to publish in two volumes the book he had been compiling from his youth. The title of this work was Treasury of Sacred and Philosophical Sayings. In volume one, he writes, in the introduction somewhere, he says, the profession of the teacher has, its, has as its foremost end the moral and religious development of the youth who are being educated. Didn't mention maths there, didn't mention science. He said the, re, the, the foremost job of the teacher, proper teacher, is the moral and religious development of the youth. That includes parents, by the way, because parents are the first teachers. You don't send your children off early to these Sunday schools and things like that. That's, that's the parent's job. The parent knows exactly what the child understands, what it doesn't understand. And these, these things, if you do send them, and anyway, we'll come back to that another time, but if you, they should be at an older age, above, above eight, where they've got some understanding of what, being, what they're being taught. Same as school. In this book, he uses the Holy Scripture, the ecumenical councils, the church fathers and saints of ancient Greek philosophers, especially the philosophers Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. Now we come to some problems here. Why is a saint using the writings of pagans? Saint Nectarius believed that properly selected passages from the ancient Greek philosophers prepare the mind for the understanding of the holy scriptures and thus are aids to Christian upbringing. Now, some of you, if you heard this before you heard the life of the saint, perhaps would be scandalised and say, what's going on here? But let us keep our seatbelts on and don't get too, too um, agitated yet because I've got more things to read to agitate you further. In volume two, he writes, Greek philosophy is the fundamental beginning of true development and education. It is the tutor of man, a guide that leads to piety. He's actually saying that these Greek philosophers, their writings, selected writings, uh, guides one to piety. Let's stop there for a minute. I'm going to ask this question. The other day on purpose I actually I said to someone on the phone, I said, oh, did you know that there are churches in Greece that have paintings in the narthex? Narthex, in, not like the churches here, but the ancient churches, the properly ancient churches, they've got the entrance. Oh, some of the Greek churches are like that too. They have the first part, which is the entrance, where a person walks in, lights candles, etc. Then there's doors. They go into the main part of the church where the people are. That's the middle of the church. And then there's the part where the priests go. So the narthex there... I said to this person that there are churches that have wall paintings of Greek philosophers. 
And this woman who's been in the church for many, many years, I was hoping to get a reaction and my hope was fulfilled. She said, that's disgusting. She was absolutely scandalised. She just, uh, she just could not understand what is... Now, remember, I have to say that the, that the wall paintings are not with halos. How do we know... So, there's a problem here and say, OK, St Nectarius is using these writings. He speaks so highly about Greek philosophy, which the Greek philosophers were pagans. And then we've got some churches that are even in Greece that have got wall paintings of these philosophers, which I'll go into detail in a minute. The question now we have to ask ourselves is, what's going on? Now, some of you that are Russian or Serbian can say, ah, oh, that must be some Greek madness. Maybe it's got something to do with the Greeks because now... Russian church would never do that and the and the and the um or the Serbian church would never do that. There's something wrong there. But then when I say, well, but St. Nectarius says all this, then there's a question. This is why I'm gonna bring all this. I'm gonna speak about it in detail after our break, which is in one minute. I'm gonna speak in detail about this because I want to teach tonight that we mustn't overreact and make judgments without knowledge. It's dangerous. Today, if a lot of people become schismatics or leave the church, it's because they've read something in the canons or someone's come along and said, see what it says in the canons here, that um, if a priest prays with a, with a heretic, then they have to be then they've got no grace or some other things that they say and the people go, oh no, the church has got to... and they run away and go, on to, go to other churches and cause all problems. And this is because people don't know what's going on. The only reason some of you haven't jumped out of your chair is because I said St. Nectarius said it. And some of you that have been here for so long have said, well, this is a big saint. His, his relics were incorrupt for so many years. He's one of the biggest wonder workers of last century until now. So many thousands of miracles. What is going on here? And the answer for that will be after our two-minute, this is only a two-minute, three-minute break for circulation. So was I right to say that some of you got scandalised with that, with what's going on here today, with this thing to do with um, Greek philosophers that were pagans, etc.? You know, uh, does that cause some confusion? That, that's legitimate. I don't mind the confusion. To be, well, I wonder what was when I first came across it years ago. I go, what is that? I wasn't, I didn't understand it. I don't have the problem of someone questioning something. The problem arises when people start going silly and saying, oh, that's not awful. No, 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 and start going that and start making up their own uh, conclusions and saying, oh, that's not a saint or that's not right or it must be the Greek church or this. Those things create 
problems and schisms and deceptions, etc. So that's why we've got to take it easy. Even when we see something that we think is 100% wrong, it's better to stand back and think and research and ask someone questions to make sure. Many people have come to me and said, I saw this in the church, I saw that, 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 I heard this. They go, it's wrong. And then I said, okay, tell me what, what you heard. And then they explain, that's not wrong. And then I explained, they go, oh, I didn't know. But at least they asked. So I've got to be careful. That's why, I'm, I'm going, that's why I brought this up today on purpose so that we can study it. Now, how do we know that a teaching is orthodox? How, how do we even know that this practice is orthodox? And the way we know is by referring to the writings of the great saints and church fathers throughout the history of the church. In other words, 2,000 years. Now, some of you remember a statement that I made, St. Vincent of, I don't know how you say that, Lorenz, Lorenz or something, states that. He says the following, and this is, this is recognised by the Orthodox Church. An Orthodox teaching is, quote, that which is believed everywhere, always, and by all. In other words, let us embrace the faith that is believed and upheld everywhere. That means Russia, Greece, Jerusalem, Alexandria, everywhere, everywhere, every Orthodox Church. Always means throughout the 2,000 years, it's always been a teaching. And by all, in other words, that, that the church, that, that the pious Orthodox Christians accepted that as a teaching. That's important. We've, and I've said this before in other talks. Now let's look at whether St. Nectarius' views about these pagan philosophers are believed Everywhere, always, and by all. Let's check that out, because this might just be him. And we know that individual saints can make mistakes. Not everything that the saints said were correct. Some saints taught, like St. Augustine, who was a Western saint, still one of our saints, but he taught some wrong things. That wasn't recognised by the church, but he's still a saint because he wasn't told at the time that what he was doing, what, what, what he was saying was wrong. And we have other saints as well. So individual saints, that's why when someone comes up to you and says um, something, they say, you know, you've got to believe this way because saint so-and-so said it. That's not enough. First, you've got to check, did, did that saint even say it? And secondly, to check, but is it a consensus? Is it believed everywhere, by all, at all times? And let's have a look. Number one, I'll give you an example here. The most renowned Greek iconographer of modern times, he lived, just died maybe a few years ago, Fotios Kontoglu, he was a well-known Greek iconographer, very traditional, made a wall painting of the Greek philosopher Pythagoras he made a wall painting, but without a halo, and he says the following. He writes, he, when, he, when he was asked, why did you do that? Why did you paint a, that picture in, on a wall? 
in a church. He writes, The old icon painters sometimes painted in the narthex of churches these wise Greeks because they, these Greeks, these pagans in other words, foresaw the dispensation of Christ's incarnation. Even though they were pagans, they actually wrote in a way they prophesied that God would become man. Even though they were pagans, they still came to that conclusion. Number two, I can't pronounce it, but in the Batchkovo Monastery in Bulgaria, there is a wall painting depicting Aristotle, a Sibyl. Now, Sibyl means a virgin prophetess. They call all those virgin prophets Sibyls, whatever. Anyway, I don't understand much of that because I didn't study ancient Greek stuff. But, and Plato. So in, and this painting, this was painted around 1640 AD. That's nearly just under 400 years ago. And it's not just in Greece. Now we're going to Bulgaria. So, the plot thickens, as they say. It's starting to spread out a bit. So let's have a look. Now, it's not just St Nectarius, and it's not just in Greece. Father Seraphim Rose writes, and we know, a lot of you don't know Father Seraphim Rose, but he, is, he died in 1982, I think, and uh, he was a convert. He came to Orthodoxy. Uh, St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, brought him to the Orthodox faith. He, was an, he became a Russian Orthodox priest and he wrote many books which have now been translated into many languages. And he would be considered a great father, like a, spiritual, like a, a great enlightened writer that had, enlight, that was, had discernment. So he's respected. He writes in, in a book, he said, quote, in ancient Greek, Bulgarian and Romanian Orthodox monasteries and churches today, one can find wall paintings of the ancient Greek philosophers who are thus honoured as seekers of truth before the coming of Christ, because they were all before the coming of Christ. But they are honoured as being seekers of truth. Now, that's important. And even the staunchest means even the strictest, the most pious, one can say, Christians in Greece, who follow the Orthodox faith and are quite strict, refer to Socrates as, quote, the apostle to the pagans. The apostle to the pagans. Now, how can that be when he wasn't a Christian? But let's go on. This is Father Seraphim now. The best-loved Greek saint of our century, says Father Seraphim Rose, Saint Nectarius of Pantopolis said that Socrates and, quote, Saint Nectarius calls him divine Plato, end quote, were at times inspired by God. So, not just Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, and uh, Greeks that are in Greece that are strict Orthodox Christians, not just ones that just go to church and do their cross and light a candle. They actually um, refer to Socrates as the apostle to the pagans. Now, some of you still want to understand what that is. Let's go on. Uh, 
I just put a little point in here. In an, in, I have read this. In an ancient Egyptian temple, maybe even more, there was a wall painting of a holy virgin, mother, holding her divine child. This story circulated among the Egyptians. And this was, I think, some of these paintings were 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. So the Egyptian philosophers painted this picture of a holy virgin mother, which made sense to the Egyptians when the mother of God came to Egypt with Christ and the Apostle James. And of course we know what happened to Egypt. That became one of the, one of the desert there was full of holy fathers, desert dwellers, etc. became a very holy, they were Christianised later on. Remember that the three wise men that came to worship Christ in Jerusalem were pagans. They were like uh, stargazers. They believed in stars, educated men, but they weren't Jews. They were not believers of the true God. But in their studies of their stars, whatever they did, they got glimpses and God enlightened them to understand that to go to Jerusalem because the Messiah was to be born, etc. So that's the three wise men. They were not, as we know, the true religion at the time was the Jewish religion. They were not of them and they were, they were pagans as well. Father Seraphim Rose writes, again he says, Saint Justin the philosopher, who is a great orthodox saint of our church, went so far as to call the pre-Christian sages, which are like those philosophers, wise men, learned men, by the name of Christian. So Saint Justin the philosopher, which is an orthodox saint, and he lived in the second century, I think, maybe... I'm not sure, in one of the first few centuries, he himself was a philosopher and he converted to orthodoxy. He came to the Christian faith. And what he did, which was great, was that he took the writings of the philosophers of the pagans and using that style, that language, he actually presented Christianity to them and brought many of the pagans to orthodoxy, to Christianity. Like today, a lot of the academics today, they don't understand spiritual things, but they understand psychology. And that's why some of our priests and bishops who are educated and well-versed in psychology use their language to present to them the orthodox. That's why we have books called um, Psychotherapy and of the soul and illness of the soul. And this is written in a way which has resemblance to the way that these psychologists and psychiatrists can read it and understand. And that's what uh, St. Justin the Philosopher did. He wrote um, in, uh, in using the style of philosophy to be able to bring the, those uh, pagans to the Orthodox faith in a language they understood. Just like when St. Paul wrote to the Hebrews in the epistle, he wrote using Jewish things from the Old Testament. When he wrote to the Romans, he, he, because they were pagans, he used their language, their things. When St. Paul went to Athens and he saw 
in Athens, all these statues of all their gods, because pagans believe in many gods, and he came across one of the statues there which said the unknown god, and then he spoke to the philosophers and says, I've come to you to speak to you about this, the unknown god, and then he brought them, some of them, that the unknown god is what is, is Christ who became man, etc. So uh, let's go on here. Among So Father Seraphim says, St. Justin the philosopher went so far as to call these, these philosophers and teachers by the name of Christian. Among those whom St. Justin mentions are Socrates, Pythagoras, Plato and Sophocles. I think, is that, is that, how do you say it? Sophocles, sorry. As you can see, I'm not well versed in, in these in these right people. Saint Justin prays Socrates for not paying homage. So Saint Justin the philosopher, an orthodox saint, praises this pagan, as one can say, this philosopher. Why? He prays Socrates for not paying homage or honouring the false gods whom the state recognised and all the people worshipped and was even killed for this. Even though he was a pagan, he wouldn't worship the idols that was the state religion of the Greek civilization. then. He didn't worship his other, I'm not going to worship. He, and because of that, he was killed. And not only that, this was... And then um, Father Seraphim says, this was because... So writes St. Justin, Christ was even partially known by Socrates, for he was and is the Logos who is in every person. So Socrates and a lot of the other pagans came close to the belief in the one God, as we'll see more in a minute. Even some academics of today or of past, of ancient Greek history, have said that Socrates could be considered the first Christian because some of his teachings were very similar to the Christian teachings. Oh, thank you for that, yeah. So I'll repeat that. St. John the Baptist, when he died and he went to Hades and preached, as we know, he preached not only to the Jews who had died, but he, but he also preached, preached to a lot of the Greek pagans who, in some way, had accepted him, even not as clearly, because they were seeking the truth. So this, is, this, this shows us that we've got to understand that the church... Is not black and white like some people believe. I'll show you one, one more thing here. The saints, Saint Father Seraphim writes that the saints of the ten virgin prophetesses, known as Sibyls, as I said, these they were virgins, they used to prophesy and things like that in their way, were cited by ancient Greek writers, in other words, ancient Christian writers, sorry, as pointing to belief in the one invisible God and offering clear prophecies of the coming of Christ. So these virgin prophetesses, they were, as I said, pagans, but they actually uh, preached 
to people that God is one, not many, like the pagans believed, and not only that, 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 and that Christ would come to earth. So they actually did that, even though they had no... These people had no contact with the true religion at the time, which was the Jewish religion. So what, what does that mean, that God's going to abandon them? That he's not going to help them in any way? That's what people believe. Guys, oh, you have to be... You have to, uh, only those who believed in, in, in Christ prop, uh, within the religion of the Jews or later on in Christianity, only they'll be saved, but not understanding. But what happens to those who had no idea? but yet we're seeking the truth. And it says here that uh, Virgil, I don't know who that is anyway, who, who died 1,900 years before the birth of Christ, used these prophecies of these women to predict that the Messiah would, quote, come down from heaven, be born as an infant from a virgin, and, bearing, and bring in, in an age in which, quote, all stains of our past wickedness would be cleansed, which is the reason why Christ came to earth to cleanse the earth of the sins and to give, grant forgiveness. And these, and these um, uh, people actually came to belief in that without having known anything. They were enlightened to some degree. And to finish off my last one, because we've heard now Father Seraphim Rose, we've heard um, that Justin the Philosopher, we've heard all these different... Uh, um, quotes here, but I've got one more for you. Saint Seraphim of Sarov, Russian saint. Let's see what he says about this matter, because we all know that he's a great saint of the Russian church. And he says these exact words are, though not with the same power as in the people of God, the Hebrews, the Jews in other words, nevertheless the presence of the Spirit of God also acted in the pagans who did not know the true God. Because even among them, God, God found for himself chosen people. So Saint Seraphim of Sarov is saying that even among the pagans, that God uh, acted in them, even though they did not know the true God. Though, but they were seeking. Let's see what he says. Go on. Such, for instance, were the virgin prophetesses, called Sibyls, so he mentions that, who vowed virginity to an unknown God, one God, but still to God, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful ruler of the world, as he was conceived by the pagans. Though the pagan philosophers also wandered in the darkness of ignorance of God, yes, they didn't know God like the Jews knew God, because they were pagans and they made a lot of mistakes. But he says here, uh, though the pagan philosophers also wandered in the darkness of ignorance of God, yet they sought the truth which is beloved by God. And on account of this God-pleasing seeking, they would partake of the spirit of God. For it is said that the nations who do not know God practice by nature the demands of the law and do what is pleasing to God. Saint Seraphim is saying that because these people sought the truth, they were looking for the truth in their broken way because they never had the writings of the uh, Moses, etc. But because they were seeking the truth, God 
gave them some of his grace and he enlightened them in some ways. Because, as St. Paul says, St. Seraphim writes here, that St. Paul says that even those who weren't brought up with Christ do what the Bible says because of their conscience and what's in their heart. And one more little paragraph from St. Seraphim. So, you see, both in the holy Hebrew people, a people beloved by God, and in the pagans who did not know God, there was preserved a knowledge of God that is a clear and rational comprehension of how our Lord God, the Holy Spirit, acts in man and by means of what inner and outer feelings one can be sure that, re- that, re- that really this is the action of our Lord God of the Holy Spirit and not a delusion of the enemy. He's saying that when the Spirit of God acted in these pagans, it was truly the Spirit of God. It was truly God's grace, not a delusion. That is how it was from Adam's fall until the coming in the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. So... Saint Seraphim clearly says that God enlightened even the pagans to come up with some of with, with, with some truth because they were seeking the truth. And I love that seeking the truth. Why? Because today not many people are seeking the truth. What a soul, a soul that's looking for the truth. I've said in the past, and some people got scandalised and go, what's he talking about? I, I even like those who have gone through, whether they've gone through heretical churches, whether they've gone through um, Hinduism, whether they've gone through Hare Krishnas, whatever, let's just say, as they're going through that, looking for the truth and rejecting when they see that it's not the truth, but they're seeking, 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 I have respect for them because they're looking for the truth. Father Seraphim Rose, he was looking for the truth. He went through a lot of those things too. God loves the soul of someone who's seeking the truth. You can always tell when someone's seeking the truth. When you speak to someone, as a priest, when I speak to someone and say, okay, well, this is what the church teachers or whatever this saint said and you can see that they if they start to concentrate their souls open up and they become absorbed in what you're saying while others including orthodox christians you say that said that that the father says the christ says that the bible says that it's like they don't accept it because they're not seeking the truth And that's why I don't waste time with those, personally for me, I don't waste time with those who aren't seeking the truth. When someone's seeking the truth, God works. When someone's not seeking the truth, when you try to help them, you become terrorised. Sometimes I forget myself and I start to speak to the person and all of a sudden I become terrorised because God's not working in that, during that time. Because that person's not interested. And that's why Christ said, don't throw the holies to the swine and to the dogs. 
because they will tread on it and rip you apart. Saint Paul says, a heretical person, a person who doesn't, who's, who's distorted the truth, after the first and second admonition, in other words, when you've tried to correct him once or twice with love, that is in prayer, then leave him. But today, people tend to waste time running after people that aren't interested, like the person that came here. Someone said, oh, but maybe she's looking for the truth. Maybe she's looking for the truth. You should help. So in other words, that's a nice trick. So I sit down and get terrorised and try to help someone who's not interested and waste my time when, when I can use my precious time to help others who want help. Elder Paiso said that too. He goes, priests should spend their time on those that are interested. Build them up. St Nectarius believed, now we're, let's end off and say what the real quote was that I didn't, I didn't put it fully. St Nectarius believed in the exact same way as St Clement of Alexandria, St Basil the Great and St John Damascus, these are all holy great, great holy fathers of the church, that properly selected passages from the ancient Greek philosophers prepare the mind for the understanding of the Holy Scriptures and thus are aids to Christian upbringing. So it's not now, I've even knew St. John Damascus, which was a 6th, 7th century saint, St. Basil, Basil the Great, which was a 4th century saint, if I remember right, and uh, St. Clement of Alexandria, which I think a few centuries, of the early centuries. These are great holy fathers and St. Nectarius followed their example. So... At the end of the day, I spent a bit of time on this because I wanted to teach today this important thing. Don't react. Whatever you hear, make sure you examine it carefully because you might find that you are reacting to something which is really not wrong. Now, does that mean I want you to go and read Greek ancient philosophy? I, I, I haven't done that. But I will read if I've got a saint that's written them, if I, if I have a book in English of Saint Nectarius, for example, and he selected the, the, the quotes and he's using those quotes and then explaining them, etc., I'll read that. But I won't go and read raw one of those other books because I won't know what's right and what's wrong in it. So I'll, I will trust the Holy Fathers who have the discernment, the enlightenment of God to know what's, what's right in them and what's wrong. Because you might read a... a um, the book on um, for Pythagoras and believe that Pythagoras's theorem is something spiritual when it's not. It's just a mathematical formula. You can get confused. So that's why just stick to the writings of the saints and don't get scandalised, don't overreact because that has led many to fall into deception and schism. The next section, in 1901, during the time that he was dean of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School, St. Nectarius published a 230-page book called Study Concerning the Immortality of the Soul and Concerning the Holy Memorial Services. If you remember earlier on, I did mention pamphlets and other things that he's done in the past, but now he did, it, he did a book, he published a book 230 pages long, much, much more detail. He does that. He might start with a pamphlet of 20 pages, then, then he goes to another one, and then all of a sudden he produces some big volumes. This is a 230-page book. The reason that he wrote this book was that he noticed, using his own words, 
the indifference of most persons towards their most sacred duties with regard to their reposed parents, brothers and sisters, owing, owing to their ignorance of the importance and necessity of the church's holy memorial services. St Nectarius noticed that people had no idea of what, of what memorial services are and how important they are to do them for those who you love have fallen asleep. People think, oh, we do them for one year, we do it every year, it's a custom, we do it, then we have some food later and this and that, we remember the person, say a couple of stories, and that's it. But that's not what memorial services are. And St Nectarius was quite shocked that people did not understand how important it is to pray for the dead. That's happening now, that's today. People don't know the importance of praying for their dead loved ones. They just don't know. He teaches that memorial services, panahidas or mnemosim as we say in Greek, are important and necessary because they benefit the souls of the dead and those who perform them. So not only do they help those who are dead, but they help those who are doing them for the dead. And that those who perform them are, quote, in his words, richly rewarded by God for their act of love and compassion for the dead. That God not only helps the dead who we are praying for, but he also helps those who are, who are doing these, who have asked the priest to pray for these people or who are personally praying for their dead. It, because God loves when someone is compassionate. Why? Because a lot of times the souls of those who have died have gone, as we'll see, to Hades and therefore they are in need of prayers to get them out. That's why St Nectarius says it's important. In the same book, he writes that, quote, the partial judgment to which all men are subjected after death is by no means complete and final, wherefore it naturally follows that they await another complete and final judgment. St Nectarius is saying there are two judgments. The partial judgment is when the soul dies. So the person dies, the body is left behind, the soul leaves the body. The soul then goes through judgment and is placed according to the deeds that, they, that, the, that the soul has performed, that what the person did. Some go to Hades, others go to paradise. He goes, that's called the partial judgment. That's the first judgment. But the second judgment will be at the end of the world when the, when the bodies will rise from the dead, so the souls, wherever they are, will come down, will enter into their bodies, doesn't matter if the body's been dissolved, it's, that's a spiritual thing, and the person rises from the dead with the body that they had when they were on earth, but in a, more of a spiritual, it's a spiritual body as well, and then they will be judged, we all will be judged at the last judgment and that's called the, um, the final judgment. And after that, that's it. 
Wherever the person goes after that is where they stay for eternity. In, in the same book, he writes that the partial judgment to which all men, meaning people, are subjected after death is by no means complete and final. Wherefore, it naturally follows that they await another complete and final judgment, which is what I said. And that happens at the resurrection of the dead. He goes on, his own words, After the partial judgment, the righteous in heaven and the sinners in Hades have only a foretaste of the blessedness or the punishment which they deserve. In other words, he's saying that when we die and our soul is judged and is placed in Hades or, or, or paradise, that we will only, if we go to heaven, we only taste a, a bit of what we're going to get in the future. And when we, if we go to Hades, we only feel a little bit of the punishment, not the full amount, which only comes after the resurrection of the dead when we receive our bodies. And he says here, during the partial judgment, only the soul of the man receives its blessedness and, or punishment, not the body as well, even though the body shared with the soul. To be fully given the reward of heaven or the punishments of hell, one needs to have their body, and that only occurs after the resurrection of the dead. So now, wherever the souls are, they are not experiencing the full, the full benefit of heaven or the punishments of hell in, in its fullness. That comes later. However, this is very important, and this comes back to the talk that I did, which is talk 29 and 30 on this topic about Hades and commemorations and all that. Look what St Nectarius, because I didn't use him at that time. I used a lot of saints, if we're, those who have heard that talk, but I didn't use him because I never knew that I, I didn't have it at the time. That's just another example. This teaching that I'm going to read now is not something which is just now or in the past. It's a teaching that has been always, by all, everywhere. First centuries, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, everywhere. Whether it's in Ireland when the Orthodox were there, in Russia, in Egypt, in Palestine, doesn't matter, Greece, Serbia, Romania. This has, all, this has been believed at all times by all Orthodox Christians, everywhere. And this is what St Nectarius ends off. Finally... After the partial judgment, some of the sinners will be relieved of the burden of the punishment and will be completely delivered from sufferings of Hades, not through their own action, but through the prayers of the church. Those of you who have heard my, the past talks and have read books, you will know that when someone dies, if they didn't, weren't able to make it to heaven because they had some, maybe some unconfessed sins or something, they weren't prepared properly. Those people who died in, with faith in Christ and were struggling, but didn't, they didn't make it, are able to be helped and be released from Hades to go to heaven, but it has to happen before the last judgment. And that's why the mother of God prays continually on her knees and prays to Christ not to, uh, not to come to earth and, um, for the last judgment, in other words, not to have the end of the world and the resurrection of the dead. She wants 
him to postpone it as much as possible. And the saints pray, not now, not now, to give people time to be released from Hades through the prayers of the church. So St Nectarius is another one which I forgot to add in that time. I never, I not forgot, but I didn't have it. In the same book, he criticises and rejects the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory as, quote, in his own words, he says that purgatory is incorrect, quite unacceptable, and without any foundation. Now, what's purgatory? The Orthodox Church teaches that there are two places that states of soul, one can say. Paradise or Hades, on, after death. The Roman Catholics had the same belief for the first centuries, but later on they introduced all these stupidities. One of them is purgatory. They say that there's a third place. So they say Hades is where the sinners go, they're going to stay there. Heaven is where the, other, the, the good, or the good ones go, but purgatory is where those that aren't prepared properly, they need some more prayers, you know, give money to the Pope, etc., to get them out, and that's called purgatory. Now, purgatory is a place or state of temporal punishment where those who have died in the grace of God, meaning they're still believers, they still were Catholic, and they still were you know, going to church, that they weren't prepared properly, um, they go there and they suffer in flames of hell, and that's not even correct, And because um, that comes later on, anyway. And they, they suffer, um, and there they make up for their unforgiven lesser sins or sins that they haven't done penance for, etc. This is all wrong. This is what a lot of the children that some of you sent to the schools, to the Catholic schools, because you trust the Pope's going to educate your children and make them big scholars and, and have, make them have good jobs. So we not only... Um, we, we also pay them big fees too to go to teach them uh, her heresy because that's what the Orthodox children... And that's why some of them come back and they're doing their cross backward. They're confused. They say the creed wrong, which is heresy. So we have our saints who prefer to die rather than to uh, embrace any teachings of the Latin church. But we have parents today who send their children to these schools to learn heresy and even say to the Pope, we trust you so much, we even give you thousands of dollars every term. So these poor parents are going out and working like dogs, two, three jobs to make money to pay either the Roman Catholics or the Protestants to educate our children to educate them in what? In heresy, to, to tell, educate them in things that are alien to orthodoxy, things that, are, that can cause people to lose their souls. Now, you might say you're very harsh. I ask the question now to you people as well. When you have your child and you're going for a... Uh, a little, uh, an outing down to the beach, say. So you go for a nice walk along the nice, they've got some nice pathways up high on the rocks. But of course the, the, the council can't afford to put fences right along. So sometimes as you're going along these beautiful walks, 
We've got to dodge all the dogs that are people have got, they're walking with them. And uh, that's why I don't go a lot of times because of that. Anyway, so they've got no fences on the side. And what happens is your child, might be five, six or four, doesn't understand, runs towards the edge. And over the edge is a big drop of hundreds of metres. I really don't believe that parents are going to be there and go, Johnny, don't run there. Can you see that happening? Don't, because you've, you've got to do what the, what the world says. The world says, you've got to speak nice, always gentle. You don't have to raise your voice. So we've got the one which is there going, Johnny, don't run to the edge, right? Like there's some, something wrong with them. Or you've got the parents that shout out and say, stop, etc. So one becomes a, a moving missile going down because they didn't hear the parent because the parent was too humble to shout. So that, off that child goes, down. And then you've got another one that screams and shouts and shocks the child and the, ch and the child drops. Like it happened once at the church when I was at a church uh, once and there was um, someone left the gate open and a little boy of around three or four, it just started charging. It was going out to go out of the driveway of the church and onto a busy road. And the, and the mother screamed her head off and the child just dropped straight away and the child was saved. That's what the saints, that's what Saint Nectarius is doing. He's saying, don't believe in these things, you'll be lost. That child falling over the cliff, okay, you know, you lose your child, but it, it, as long as it's, it gets saved. But the point there is that heresy cuts us off from God. And that's why the priests need today to be shouting out and saying at times, stop, and to use harsh language at times, sometimes soft language, sometimes harsh language, strict language at times, because times are difficult and people are losing their souls. In 1904, during the time that he was dean of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School, when he was a teacher there and the, and the head, St. Natas published a book called Study Concerning the Mysterion of the Divine Eucharist. St. Nectarius strongly condemns those who do not receive Holy Communion regularly because of absolute indifference to the benefits that one derives from it and not because they are obstructed by some sin. Now, some people, when they go to confess to a, a, a good spiritual father, the spiritual father will say to some people, look, if you're living with that man, you, you can't commune until you stop, etc. If you had an abortion, maybe for a while you can't commune. Or whatever, there's all these things that people go through, what's called penance. I did that in Talk 43, a whole section of there, that it's, penances are important, they're soul-saving. And St. Nectarius is not condemning those people who are not communing because they're under some penance. However, he can, he is, he's condemning, it says the word strongly condemns those who are not communing regularly because they don't care. They don't understand the benefits that they receive from receiving holy communion frequently. Them, he's, he condemns. He's a, he's a, he's, um, he speaks against those people. He says that, quote, whether we receive Holy Communion unworthily or we avoid it, we have no life. And what does he mean by that? 
if someone doesn't commune because they say, I'm unworthy, or if someone doesn't commune um, because they just avoid it, they don't know, the, they don't care, whatever, because there's people who say, I can't commune because I'm unworthy. Others say, I don't commune because I don't care. Because whether you're one or the other, because some people act pious, they go, who am I to commune often? Who am I to commune often? So they don't commune. They push their children to commune every week, but they, don't, they, they only commune every few months. So when the children grow up, they go, well, that must be the way I do it too. That's a really good lesson. He's, Saint, Saint Nectarius says that if you avoid Holy Communion because you think that you're unworthy or because you don't care, there's no life. And he quotes Christ's statement which says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And, quote, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up at the last day. So St. Nectarius reminds his readers that this is what Christ commanded, that we must eat his body and drink his blood to have life. Now, we're going to go on more because we're going to find out why people are depressed, etc. Now, hence it may be justly called, he says, and be viewed as the miracle of miracles and the mystery of mysteries. Now, I'm going to read a couple of, of his, from his writings on Holy Communion. To see what he says about it. Just four little quotes. To those who receive Holy Communion worthily, it offers not only salvation, but also a great number of other gifts through which man is rendered an image and likeness of God. So those who receive Holy Communion, yes, they receive salvation because without the body and blood of Christ, one cannot be saved. But also, it gives other gifts. He'll explain that later on. Through divine communion, we are united with God and enter into relation and contact with him. Through such union, we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control and so many, so many other virtues. The eyes of our soul are opened, the mind is illumined and the heart is purified. So that's the benefits that one receives when they receive Holy Communion. So why come people don't receive Holy Communion? If there are obstructions, then fix up the obstructions. For example, if people are living together or people are doing sins that, are, that bar them from Holy Communion, fix it up. Go to the priest, confess it, receive a penance, and then aim to commune and then thereafter commune often. See what it says here? It says the gifts are love, joy, peace. He goes on about that peace later on, that people don't have peace today. Forbearance, goodness, faith, all these things one receives from receiving Holy Communion frequently. I love the one up the top as well, worthily. To those who receive Holy Communion worthily. Once I said that at, when I was a lay person. It's a nice, a nice little quick one-minute, two-minute story. I was doing some talks at our house once years ago before I became a priest. And um, I said that we should receive Holy... Exactly what, he, what Saint Nectarius said. We should receive Holy Communion worthily 
obviously, I forgot to say, even though we're not worthy, but that's how the church, even the Holy Communion prayers say, like, may I approach for Holy Communion worthily. There was a, and in that talk, I spoke about many other things. Anyway, there was a woman that was present at that talk. And as soon as she heard that, which I didn't know, I only found out years later, she, start, she got onto her, like a, one can imagine, like a white horse. And she started running around on her horse to all these priests and saying that I'm a heretic because I said that uh, the word, I said worthily, because she said, because no one's worthy. So she was going around on the white horse and, and shouting out against me and saying that I'm this per bad person. When I became a priest, she even said to people, don't go to him because he says you've got to be worthy to have Holy Communion. Anyway, then I thought about it and thought about it and then I realised what was her problem. It wasn't the statement, that was just an excuse. The real reason she was against, but she couldn't say that, she had to use this as an excuse, was because her face looked like a mannequin from David Jones, from a department store. She had, well, basically she looked like Ronald McDonald, right? So she had lipstick, makeup, etc. And, and in that talk, I said that those things aren't proper. So she doesn't go around to the priest and say, oh, you know, he spoke against women having makeup because he, he, she knows that that's really what the church teaches. So she, she, she's very smart. She changed it goes, he said that you've got to be worthy to have communion. See, a lot of times when people go against priests, it's not what you think. A lot of times there's something behind it. So let me say, St Nectarius here says to those who receive Holy Communion worthily. Worthily means that we come to communion having confessed and having repented of our sins and come into communion with the understanding that we are spiritually sick, that we are sinful, that we want to be healed and that we want salvation. That's what it means by worthily. Divine communion, St Nectarius goes on, cures the sick heart and body of those who approach it with faith. So St Nectarius is saying not only does it cure the soul, but it also cures the body a lot of times. It often saves our life and rescues us from dangers and affects many other marvellous things. Now, the way St Nectarius is writing is exactly the same as St John of Kronstadt writes. It's exactly the same as St Eustin Povich writes, the Serbian saint. It's the same as so many of the saints, St Nicolaus, who believed in frequent communion. Unfortunately, today, there are some churches that don't believe in frequent communion. That is a problem. It's just not looked at as good. In the Greek church, um, there was a movement of those who wanted to bring back the church to the, its ancient roots. And the ancient roots is frequent holy communion. St Nectarius was one of them. Oh, how happy and blessed must be considered he who receives the divine mysteries worthily. Ooh, better watch out for that one. Such a person comes out of the church wholly renewed, because the fire of God, having entered into the soul of man through divine communion, burned up its sins, filled it with divine grace, strengthens its power, strengthened its powers, 
illumined the mind and rendered the heart a dwelling place solely of the Holy Spirit. That's the way that St. Nectarius speaks about Holy Communion. So what are we going to do about that? It's not a good sign. If someone does not, using an everyday term, crave, that's not a very good word, but desire to commune and without communion they feel that they're kind of dying and they need communion to be, to, to be enlivened, then that, those people are not leading spiritual lives. That's an indication that someone is leading a spiritual life, that they have that constant desire to commune as often as possible. Because when we commune, we have Christ living in us. And that's when people don't want Christ living in them, then what happens then is they start to get into bad, other bad things sins because when we don't commune we don't even feel conscious of the sins that we're doing in the same year 1904 saint nectarius published a book called study concerning the saints of god in this book he writes failure to give due honor and reverence to the saints of god is impiety ingratitude indifference and a lack of desire for self-perfection in virtues he condemns those who do not honour the saints. And honouring the saints does not mean just coming to church and venerating the icons and putting a $2 coin there or lighting a candle. Honouring the saints means to read their lives, to pray to them and to have them part of your life. Saint Eustin Povich, when I went there years ago before I became a priest, the nun that took us on the tour there around and she was speaking to us and, she's, and I went, they, she took us to his room his uh, his office and in and in his office he had icons everywhere every single part of his room was full of icons and she said in serbian but i had a translator there she said that um the saint every day as part of his prayer rule would pray to every single icon in the room he would pray just do even a small prayer saint of saint you know saint george please pray for me whatever to every single saint saint Eustin Povich was a firm believer of the lives of saints and that's why he published volumes of lives of saints for the Serbian people. So, how do we know if we're leading a spiritual life? By our relationship with our, with the, with the saints. How do we know a couple, a husband and wife, have a good relationship by the way that they act with each other? Do they respect each other, etc.? How do they act? And that's the way we know that they have a good relationship. How do we know that we are Orthodox Christians? By our relationship with the saints. Failure, the church calls on the saints in its prayers as intercessors with God and also honours their relics and everything that belonged to them as well as icons depicting them. So St. Nectarius is saying the church calls on the saints, as we heard today in the service, the priest praying. We also are petitioning the saints, as everyone should do even at home in their prayer room, as St. Eustin was doing. And it says here that we not only honour the saints and pray to them, but we also honour their relics and everything that belonged to them, as well as icons depicting them. Next point, from the orthodox standpoint... The concept of the church contains in itself the dogma of the intercession of the saints, which was universal in the church of the first, few, first centuries. 
Saint Nectarius is saying that to pray to the saints, to ask the prayers of the saints to pray to God for us, is a dogma. It's a teaching of the church, and it is a teaching that started from the time of the apostles to now. It's always been a dogma. It's a dogma of the church and was regarded from the beginning as an undoubted truth and has been held as such throughout the centuries. Throughout the centuries, everywhere, by all, etc., is the, is, this, is the dogma of the intercession of the saints. In invoking the intercession of the saints, the church believes that the saints who interceded with the Lord for the peace of the world and the stability of the holy churches of Christ while living do not cease doing this in Christ's heavenly church and listen to our entreaties in which we invoke them and pray to the Lord and become bearers of the grace and mercy of the Lord. Saint Nectarius there is saying that while the saints were alive, they prayed for everyone. They prayed for the world, they prayed for people, etc. So why would their prayers stop or because they've gone? So just like he says they prayed when they were alive, Saint Nectarius, as we saw in the life, while he was alive, he prayed. He prayed for rain, he prayed for possessed people, he prayed for sick people, he prayed for so many things, and he helped a lot of people. And when he died, that prayer continued, but in a more strong way, because then it was, it was thousands and thousands of miracles. So the saints don't stop praying, or because they've passed into the next life. We've come to half, parts, half of the talk. I forgot to mention, just, just while they come, um, one person at the, at, the, at the last break reminded me that when she went to Greece to a monastery, to, to a monastery there, and it was after Pascha, so as we know, Pascha, the Holy Week, a lot of fasting, very tiring, long services, and what was the practice at that monastery is that the abbess, being a very loving mother, what she did was that she would send some of the nuns that were very, very much fatigued by the whole thing, from the fasting, from the lot of prayers, that weren't coping very well, she would send them off to some place that was remote, far away, maybe near in the mountains or near the sea, somewhere where they must, must have had some metohia, as we call them, like places that belong to the monastery. They go there and they rest, eat, rest, not too many services, just a little bit of prayer, because uh, for some people it can become very taxing. Again, it shows that um, we have bodies and some people can take more and some people can't take much. And we have to be uh, understanding not to push our children or ourselves too much and don't go and get thing and think, okay, well, the saints did that. They drank um, only water every three days. Right? If, you want, if you want to know what failure, kidney failure is, do that. Ed, is, it, is it ready? Okay. Break for uh, 10 minutes and have some sandwiches and things like that. In 1904, again, while he was still at the um, school, when he was teaching there, he wrote another book. This time he, it was called Study Concerning the Mother of the Lord, the Most Holy Theotokos and Ever-Virgin Mary. 
Now, in this book, the saint defends the orthodox teaching that the Theotokos, quote, was a virgin before she gave birth to Christ, was a virgin when she gave birth, and remained a virgin after she gave birth, end quote. He writes that the most holy Theotokos must be venerated in an orthodox manner. Even though she's more honourable than the cherubim and beyond compare more glorious than the seraphim, she's above all the angels, the Orthodox Church must avoid the heresy which appeared in the third century uh, of worshipping the Theotokos, giving her honour due only to God, which is what the Roman Catholics do. They've elevated her to a level which is beyond uh, any, of, any teaching of the Church. Even in the Roman Church before the schism, that was never that was never a teaching. They changed it, and then he, he also he, he also um, the opposite to this heresy of making the Mother of God just about equal to God is that of the Protestants who lower the Holy Theotokos to the level of just an ordinary woman. So there's two groups. So the Roman Catholics have raised it too high, and the Protestants have low. But the Orthodox have and venerate the Mother of God in an, in the correct manner according to the ecumenical, to the third ecumenical council. So that was in 1904. He made that he, he published that book, but in 1905 um, he published his first book of poetry, which was 52 pages, called the Theotokarian. He writes in that book. I have composed some odes and hymns in praise of the All-Holy Mother of the Lord, who is quick to listen, like we did today, quick to hear, help and protect those who invoke her, who ask her help, and also as an expression of my infinite gratitude to her for her many benefactions to me. A lot of you will remember from the three parts that I did of St Nectarius, parts one, two and three, Talks 49, 50 and 51. That, St Nectarius prayed continually to the Mother of God. He honoured her continually, asked her help continually. And he's saying, he, and he experienced her help. And that's why he's saying that she's quick to hear, she helps everyone, she protects, and he wanted to express his gratitude for all the help that she gave him during his trials, during his sicknesses, for the, when he prayed to her for others. And I'll give you an example. If you remember, the 18-year-old student of St Nectarius who was dying in hospital. Some of you might remember that. The doctors said that they can't help him. And seeing the hopelessness of the situation, the saint of God prayed all night to the Holy Theotokos. He asked her to intercede to Christ for the healing of Nicholas, which was the name of the boy. He somehow some he had some type of depression. He met him at the school where well, he, he was a student of, of his school, and then he saw him once out in the in the um, garden and spoke to him. And this boy, for some reason, had fixed in his head that he's going to die. Had some type of psychological problem, and Saint Nectarius prayed for him. And this, but unfortunately, he he became worse and worse and worse until he was taken to hospital. And um, he promised the Holy Virgin that if the boy was to become well, he in thanksgiving would compose poetic hymns to her. 
The saint then invited the students to attend a paraclesis to the Mother of God, which is what we did today, in the school chapel to pray for the sick boy. So the saint invited all the students of the school, come and pray for your friend, for your schoolmate, in the chapel. So he got them all in the chapel, teachers as well, and they all prayed for this boy that was dying in hospital, which the doctors could not find what was wrong with him. And the boy got better. So that's why he, uh, that miracle that occurred and other miracles and all the prayers that he did to the mother of God. Uh, and that's how we should be as well. Just say, oh, that's St. Nicholas. No, we all should have a relationship with the mother of God. We should all pray to her continually. Everyone, those who've got families, or it doesn't matter if you're single or whatever, continue. You cannot be orthodox if you do not have, um, if you do not venerate the mother of God in an orthodox manner and pray to her. We said that's in a, I said that in a talk that I did in the church a few weeks ago, that her function, if I can use that word, is to continually pray for mankind. She continually prays to Christ for, for everyone. Two years after he published this book, in 1907, he published a second edition, which was now 292 pages. The saint wrote that the, wrote in there, the, the fervent desire to praise the Theotokos prompted me to write new odes and new hymns. So he wrote it for the first book, but his heart was so much, he had devotion and love for the Mother of God that he, his soul kept on pouring out more and more and more of these odes and hymns to the Theotokos. One of them is the one which we sing, O Virgin Pure, which has been translated into so many languages, which we sing here as well in English, O Pure Virgin, or Agniparthena in Greek. Um, and each verse ends with, O Rejoice, Bride Unwedded. It's a beautiful hymn. He put that together. And then some, I think, a monastery in Sivano Petra Manathos, I think, put it, to, put it to church music and made it to be singable. So the next um, thing, on one occasion, St. Nectarius said to his beloved assistant, Costa, if you remember, he had a, a, a young man that helped him. Um, when he was uh, uh, the, the dean of the school. The only, he said to him, the only thing I wish is to be able to, contri to contribute all my God-given abilities to the assistance of our ailing Orthodox Church. He said, I wanna, all I want to do is serve the, the Orthodox Church, which he called ailing. Ailing means sick. Let's see why. Our sweet Orthodoxy happens to be the only ark of godly power and truth with immense power of salvation. He is saying here that the Orthodox Church is the true church. Not ecumenist, like the ecumenists today who say the ecumenists, they say all the churches, oh well everyone, everyone believes in their own way and everyone can be saved, it doesn't matter what you believe. And they're Orthodox bishops as well that say that. But that's not what St. Notarius believed. Now, who would you rather listen to, of course? So he said, our sweet orthodoxy happens to be the only ark of godly power and truth with immense power of salvation. And unfortunately, it is being attacked everywhere. The Masons, now Masons are a secret type of group. 
um, that believe in this great architect. And the Church of Greece has anathematized anyone who's a Mason. They said, you cannot be a Mason, an Orthodox Christian. If you're a Mason, you're not Orthodox Christian. You cannot be buried by the church. You cannot commune in the church, etc. Greece is strict. In the West, unfortunately, it's like that. Doesn't matter. You can be a Mason. You can be an Orthodox. But that's not how. That that's not the truth of the matter. Um, these people um, have a lot of influence and power. And anyway, that's another pseudo philosophers. The church has been attacked by them, like as we said, like Darwin, he was a flock of scientists and philosophers that are saying all things contrary to the church. Materialists, false politicians, leaders of nations, and worst of all, even clerics are guilty of this attack. So St. Nectarius doesn't mince words, he says it straight out. Who are the enemies of the church, including politicians and this and that? And he said, even the clergy of are guilty of this attack. The holies are being trampled by wolves who act like sheep and ignorant professionals who are unable to fight off the assaults of the evil one. That's what Christ says. Beware of those who look like sheep but really are wolves. What does that mean? It means they can be from outside the church, that they look like good people, and, but really they are wolves. But most of all, that refers to those who are in the church, whether they're priests, whether they're bishops, whether they're theologians, etc. Those who, even though they have the appearance of being orthodox, but really are wolves. Because when a wolf goes to grab sheep, Obviously, when the sheep see him, they run away. So that's what they say. So they say, like a thing, like the sh- like um, like a um, what do you call those things? Like a story, like you know, like the wolf would have to wear sheep skin to try and attack them. Well, that's what they do. They appear orthodox, but are really wolves that are, are attacking the orthodox Christians. And how are they attacking the orthodox Christians? By teaching things that are contrary to the church. When a priest or a bishop says you can go into any church you want as long as there's a cross, you can go there, do prayers, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. When they say that the Pope is a bishop just like other bishops of the Orthodox Church, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. When they say that the mysteries of the other churches are the same as the Orthodox, they are sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. St. Nectarius says they, they are, they trample, they, the holies are being trampled by wolves. I am beginning to think, he said, that I should find a suitable place in Egina, preferably close to the town, to establish a theological school for pious preachers who will then go out with total self-sacrifice and godly love to preach the word of God. What does that mean? Now, as you know, the nuns were already over there. He was still at the school. Uh, he, was toss- he was starting to have thoughts to go to a monastery of his own, to a men's monastery. But then he started to see, perhaps I should be go to Aegina to take care of the nuns because they, gotta, they need help. I can't leave them there on their own. 
because he noticed they were falling into deception, they were fighting with each other, etc. So he said, I must help them. And he probably had the thought that while he's there, that he should actually set up a school on the island of Aguina, a theological school, where he can prepare pious preachers who will go out with total self-sacrifice, not part-time preachers, preachers that are dedicated fully to preaching the word of God, whether they're clergy or lay people, and to preach and, and, it says, and uh, with total self-sacrifice and godly love to preach the word of God. Why? Because people were ignorant, as they are now, and that is needed. That is needed. The, there is, a, there is a, a need for preachers to preach the truth to people who are in darkness and ignorance today. So, St. Nectarius, as I said, he wasn't scared to say the truth, and hence why he was hated. In 1904, during, again during the times at the school, he wrote another study called um, Study Concerning Repentance and Confession. Which has been translated into English, that's the book there. So that's, he, he wrote a little booklet called Study Concerning Repentance and Confession. In this book, and in his other publications on this topic, the saint said the following. Now I'm going to write, I'm going to read some of the things that he talks about this topic of repentance and confession. I found when I read, the, you know, this is a good book, we have some at the back, but a um, little bit difficult at some parts, but still, it, you can still get a lot out of it. This is exactly the words of the saint on the topic. So let's see what he says. Our concern for salvation must be without delay due to the approaching danger to our soul's salvation. Today, you don't even hear the word salvation. I'm sorry. I mean, there are, look, there are priests who do that, but they're very few. Why? Because... It's distasteful because if you say the word salvation, it means what? People say, what do you mean by salvation, Father? Well, it means you've got to struggle. And then they say, so what happens if you don't struggle? The priest will have to say, um, uh, you don't get saved. And then the priest has to be careful that he doesn't get his eyes scratched out because today people don't like those topics. Even at a funeral, a priest can't even say. It's very hard for a priest to even say that we must struggle in orthodox manner to be saved and the relatives come up and say, what are you saying? My father never went to church. Does that mean he's not saved? And yap, 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 and, you know, and that's it. And the priest gets, get, as I said, his eyes scratched out, get his beard pulled, and if he's got long hair, he can even get that pulled as well. So uh, it's the whole, that, that's how difficult it is today. It's a martyrdom just to be a parish priest. I'm not a parish priest. I can speak a bit more freely. And I don't want to ever be a parish priest for that very reason. You have to be 
very strong to actually have a parish today to be able to teach orthodoxy. It needs strength. I sometimes I don't, I don't know how those priests do it. I, I just couldn't. Think. And it, and that's how they are. Very the people can become very ruthless, horrible. They can even start a whole warfare. Remember the one with the makeup. Well, they can start up a war for other things and say lies, etc. But, you know, because they're offended about that, they're not going to mention that. They'll mention other things. And they say, oh, he did this. And they make up things and, you know, it's, it's just horrible. So our concern, says St. Nectarius, is for the salvation of our soul. And we, mu- and, and we must not delay because we could lose our souls. He who is unconcerned about the salvation of his soul is at risk of twofold danger. One, he may either be unexpectedly snatched by death or, two, abandoned by the grace of God. In both cases, the harm is immense because the outcome is the death of the soul. Imagine saying that today in a parish. And that's why God has given the monasteries and that's why... In Greece, for example, those who preached a lot of the the truth were priest monks and the monasteries. They always are the keepers of orthodoxy and people would run to the monasteries to receive the pure word of God, not filtered down. These are are, are very difficult things to actually, for people to hear. However... I have no committee here, no church committees. Once I was invited to a church to actually do some, um, to do, um, um, for years ago when I was younger, they said, oh, can you do a service because the priest is sick or something? And they said, but we don't want you to preach. I go, no preaching, no service. Which one do you want? Right? Either I preach and I serve or... I don't serve at all, and I'll walk out right now. But that's me. I got no. I don't get paid by these people, so I got. I, I don't. You know. I don't care about them. Two two factors are involved in man's salvation: the grace of God and the will of man. So, for someone to be saved, two things are needed: God's grace, obviously, but also man's will, meaning the person's own effort. God cannot save us by force. We're not robots. In other words, if a person doesn't want to be saved, then God can't save them. Even though God is great and he can do so much, but he can't force someone to be saved. There needs the person to make an effort. Both must work together. If salvation is to be attained, so for both must work together if salvation is to be attained. If we, need, if we want to be saved, we have to have two things, our own effort and God's grace. There are people who make their own effort but don't trust in God and others who sit there and say, I want God to save me, but I'm not going to make any effort. Grace does not, have, grace does not save without the consent of man. There is a need of man's voluntary consent, free will. God needs the permission of the person to, if that person wants to be saved, he has to give God permission to say, I want to be saved. Without the man's consent, 
without man's position, God will not impose himself on that person and save him by force. One must return to his Lord God, repent for one's sins in order to be cleansed, sanctified and saved. One must return to his Lord God, repent for one's sin in order to be cleansed, sanctified and saved. So, like the prodigal son that we, we read in the Gospel, he went away from his father, which, which, meant, which was represented as God, and he went out and did his sins. And then he came to himself, which I'll read for you. But when he, this is now the prodigal son, if you remember, some of you know that. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I per perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and not worthy to, worthy to be called your son. So see, the person led his life of sin, like we all did and do, and then we come to ourselves. So the person makes a decision, I will go to my father and confess. And that's what the person has to make a decision, say, I will come to the church, I will come to Christ through the priest and confess. That's what it means. But the person has to make that decision. You can't force someone to go to confession to repent. I don't like that. People do that. go... You know, the people change, I've said this before, and then all of a sudden they say to their relatives, you've got to confess, 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 confess. And they wonder why their, their relatives make them, say that you make me sick. Because it's fanatical. You don't force people to go and repent, to repent or confess. It's got to be free will, like the prodigal son. He came to himself and he said, I have sinned, I will go to my father. So that's where it's free will, that's what St. Joseph is saying. And he arose and came to his father. He arose. Arose means that he got up, left the sin, and made an effort to go back to God. But, um, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. This is wonderful because it says, and when he was still a far way off. What does that mean? In other words, the person was in his sin, was doing sins, and then he awakens and says, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to return. So he says, he started to come back. But it says, a long way off. That means the person... Was only, take, only took a few steps, one can say. Only took a few steps. And God, seeing those few steps, ran to him. But he couldn't run to him. He couldn't come to him to forgive him and show him his love before the person made an attempt. And that's why it's wonderful, that, that, that parable, when it says here, and, this, um, and when he was still a great way off, See, all God wants from us is the first step, just even one step, just that, even a desire, just that desire, I want to improve, I want to, I want to be saved, even just that. Just that desire is enough for God to come and show his love and forgiveness and help us. But if we don't make that, if we don't have that desire and we don't make any attempt, God cannot help us. That's what St. Nectarius is saying. Continue on with St. Nectarius. Repentance is a mystery 
through which he who repents for his sins confesses before a spiritual father who has been appointed by the church and has received the authority to forgive sins and receives from the spiritual father the remission of sins and is reconciled to God against whom he sinned. So St. Nectarius is saying that if we, we, if we want to repent and, 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 and confess, we must do it to a spiritual father that's been appointed by church. Now, by the church. Now, some people say to me, um, some, you know, Greeks or whatever, other people, they say, oh, I like St. Nectarius. He's, he's really good. St. Nectarius. I go, okay. He's a great saint. And then the topic might come up about confession. They go, I don't believe in confession. Did you say that you like St. Nectarius? Yes. But St. Nectarius said that. So, see, we like the saints when they suit us a lot of times. When they don't suit us, then we just pick and choose. So, yeah, I like St. Nectarius. He's really great, but I don't like that part. Or that part. Or that part. Or that part. Or that part. So what do you like? What, what do you like? I like his icon. Then there's those who say, you don't have to go to church. You just have to be a good person. These are the philosophers, not the pagan philosophers, the new pagan ones. Uh, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to go to church as long as you believe in Christ. I said, well, Christ himself used to go to the temple every Saturday. So he actually gave us an example. So therefore, how then are you going against what he himself did? And St. Nectarius continues, repentance signifies regret, like the prodigal son, he regretted what he did. Change of mind, that's what repentance means in Greek, metania, which means change of mind. I don't want to do that anymore, I want to change my life. The distinguishing marks of repentance are contrition, that's sorrow for our sins, tears, aversion towards sin. That means that we're repulsed by sin. And the love of the good, it's not enough just to hate sin, but we also have to love what's good, love the commandments, love the virtues, love whatever God has given us as being good. And that is interesting because a lot of times we, don't, we, aren't, we do not have an aversion towards sin. We know it's wrong. A lot of times we're not disgusted by it, we don't hate it. That's not a very good sign. And that happens to all of us. The more we struggle, the more we come closer to God, the more we begin to hate the sin. That's why the saints, the closer they were to God, the more they hated the sin. And the more we want to do what is of what God wants us to do, the commandments and whatever is good, in other words. The grace of God abandons the unrepentant man. A person who doesn't repent, because he doesn't want to repent, God abandons that person. It is just that he who abandons God should be abandoned by him. So the person who abandons God should be abandoned by God. So first, as I said before, first we leave God, then God leaves us. It is just, it is correct, he's saying, it's just that he who repels divine grace which invites him, should be repelled. 
So God's grace is always there ready to help a person. God's grace is always ready to come to the heart of the person to help them to, help them to repent, to bring them to, towards salvation. But when the person closes their heart and doesn't want that grace to come in them, then God will repel, will, will, um, repel them because God's continually trying to invite us to come towards him. It is just that God should turn his face away from one who turns away from him because this person has dis disregarded the wealth of God's kindness, tolerance and forbearance. So someone who turns away from God and then God turns away from him. So first we reject him, then he rejects us, not the other way around. Confession must be voluntary and sincere in order for it to be true and effective. We shouldn't be forced to confess something. We should do it because we feel that we want to say the sin, not because someone's forced us or we think that we've got to say it, whatever. It's got to become from a sincere heart. A rushed and insincere confession is fruitless since it's not a, re a revelation of the heart it's not an expression of deep remorse and it's not yearning for treatment. A person that goes to confession just says a few things there and then runs away does not show, and it won't be effective, that um, that, that comes from deep remorse. That means the person truly has sorrow for what they've done. And, it's, and, to, and, um, and the person is, is uh, yearning, desires to be healed confession is also healing as we will read on confession is a voluntary and sincere acknowledgement of sins committed so we said that when we go to confession we go because we want to do it without shame and reluctance or hesitation but with self-reproach and contrition to the person the priest in other words who has been appointed by the church to forgive sins now, St. Nectarius here is saying that when we go to confession, we mustn't have shame. Don't let shame get in the way. Because if we don't confess it to one person, which is the priest, then we will, our sins will be exposed on the last day in front of the whole world. And St. Nectarius saying is to have self-reproach. In other words, condemn yourself. You say, this is what I've done. I've done bad, this is what I've done. And I'm sorry for what I've done and I ask God's forgiveness and you go to the priest and you say it. They who have sinned and do not, con and do not confess due to embarrassment hand their souls over to death on account of shame. So St. Nectarius says, what's the point in going to the priest or not going at all? To say your sins, because that's just death. These people suffer identically to sick people who do not rush to the doctors due to embarrassment. Overcome by the disease, they quickly send to Hades. So, St. Nicholas is saying, just like someone is sick, they don't go to the doctor because they're embarrassed, might have to undress or who knows, and they say, just as stupid as they are, that's as stupid as people are who don't go and, and expose their sins to the spiritual doctor, which is the priest. Don't hesitate. Don't be embarrassed. Say it, is what he's saying. 
But God cannot be fooled because he knows everything. They who conceal their sins, those who don't say their sins either at all or they go to the priest and say some but they don't say all of them, suffer similarly to sick persons who conceal their sicknesses and do not give a true history of their do- to their doctors because of embarrassment. So we've got the ones who go to the doctor, as I said, they either don't want to go because they're shy, or they go and they don't say everything. And he says, those people are silly. How's the doctor? The doctor doesn't know. Like I was talking to someone the other day and she said to me, oh, I've got um, my... Sometimes I can't breathe. You know, she goes, what, what's that from? And I said, I don't know. Maybe you ate sulphides or something because they're in the prunes or in the... Go, oh, I had some prunes, yeah. I go, yeah, and what else? He goes, and I had some bacon. I go, bacon's full of sulphides and that. And that, for some people, that can cause an allergic reaction. I go, you should go to the doctor. He goes, I've gone to the doctor. They always say, I don't know what's wrong. I've gone to the hospital. They said to me, why well, they go, they don't know what's wrong. They go, maybe it's a spiritual thing. I said, oh, okay, I don't know. It might be the prunes. I don't know, because it couldn't, didn't know what to say. And then all of a sudden, we're talking there for half an hour about the sulphides. And then all of a sudden, she says to me, um, I also got extreme weakness. I go, oh, but you didn't say that. What else do you have? Oh, I've got continual headaches and I'm confused. I go, okay, and what else? From the, from the choking of the, from the not being able to breathe, now we've got, I've got chest pains. My eyes are thing, heavy. I've got anger. I've got this, I've got that. I go, well, now I've got an understanding of what's wrong. You're under some demonic type of um, problem because... I said, oh, yeah, and I said, do you feel like vomiting too? She goes, yeah, I do. How do you know? Because sometimes that happens. Now, not always. You've got to be careful because sometimes a person can, um, can feel like vomiting because they ate McDonald's. So you've got to be careful. <laughs> We've got to be careful of what's, what's what. But the, it's up to the priest. Sometimes it's very hard to try and discern. So I said, okay, look, very simple. Holy water. Read, read some prayers. Get the priest to come to your place, read some prayers, etc. Because unfortunately, this particular woman, uh, her mother-in-law was involved in magic. And therefore, um, there's a history there. And those symptoms that she was saying, like, pretty much sound like that. And it's funny, and she says, oh, you know, but when I get prayers read by the priest, it's like they go away. Well, that's uh, showing it, isn't it? So it must not be physical, it must be spiritual. But the thing is that just when we go to a priest, don't say one part, say everything. Don't be embarrassed, don't be shy. When we confess, be ruthless with yourself and say, I'm going to say everything. I, you know? But God, uh, so we said, confession must be performed without embarrassment and reluctance, but with boldness and self-reproach. Embarrassment confirms that there exists a lack of courage. Boldness and self-reproach. Put yourself down. I always tell people, you know how we get into these judging fits where we judge people and we never have any excuse, like husbands do it to their wives, wives do it to their husbands. Say, for example, a husband, I've spoken to husbands and I say, look, do you understand that your wife's, you know, she's had a couple of children and she's really tired and goes, well, I'm tired too, I've got to work. <laughs> well, it's a bit different. You didn't give birth. And you didn't give birth twice with a, with a span of one year. 
and you also don't breastfeed and you're not getting up in the night to change nappies and to, and to feed the child, etc., etc. Yeah, but I go to work. You see, so there's no understanding and then they become very ruthless in their, in, in, in their um, judging. I said, just like you judge in that way, which we all do a lot of times, why don't we be ruthless with ourselves and give no excuse to ourselves and say, yes, I did this, 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 this. And it's my fault, my fault, my fault, my fault. And have no mercy on ourselves. But instead, we don't do that to ourselves, but we do it to others. We judge others. So that's what self-reproach means. Put yourself down. If we do not struggle, we have accomplished nothing, says St. Nectarius. Then the prayers of the spiritual father are useless. The, the money that we give for paraclysis, malebans, etc., are useless. The 40-day liturgies are also useless when they are performed on behalf of an unrepentant person who has not appeased God and who still lives in sin. We are saved through contrition of the heart and true confession. So St. Ethos is saying that when we do prayers for someone who stubbornly continues to sin, doesn't want to repent, doesn't want to change their life, you can do as much as you want, you can give as much money as you want and to the priest and say, pray, pray, pray. If that person, St. Nectar is saying, has not made an effort to stop his sin and turn towards God, then the prayers are worthless. You can give all the money you want. He says, we are saved through contrition of the heart, means we are saved when we are sorry for our sins, when we repent and confession. The demon's desire is to destroy us, but when we repent and confess, they are unsuccessful. How beautifully written. Spiritual warfare. St. Nectarius is saying, the, demon has one, the demons have one aim, that no one gets saved. That's, that's their aim. That's the, all the effort that they put in is they don't want anyone to be saved. And when saint, some saints have um, uh, spoken to, to, to the demons and, and tied them by God and said to them, you know, I, I, in the name of God, I tell you, what do you... What are you what do you um, tell me what you do or something like that? He goes, um, he goes well, we, um, we want to push people into the worst sins. And he goes, and what bothers you the most? What is the, what is the, what is the thing which you don't like the most? He goes, when they repent and confess. He goes, but a lot of times they go back and do it anyway. And that, that makes us feel better again. So that is a clear thing that the demons do not want any of us to repent and confess, to lead a spiritual life, to do the commandments of Christ. That's what St. Nectarius says. It's up to the person, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. The person who does not confess his sins will never find peace because he will never draw near to God. Now we come to this peace. The person who does not confess his sins finds himself continually under the weight of guilt and distance from God. This is why the soul suffers and pains. So we hear people say, my soul, my soul is burning, I'm suffering, I'm, 
a lot of times depression, as depression can be psychological, I'm talking about now when it's a different thing, when it's because a person is far away from God. St. Nectarius says that the person is, is under the weight, continually under the weight of guilt and distance from God, and this is why the soul suffers pains. That's why you can take as much medication as you want for those particular problems when it's got to do with unconfessed sins and uh, it, it does not work. As I said, there are other psychological problems that come from disturbances from young. It could be also a biochemical. There's a lot of reasons. But a lot of times it also can be when a person has distanced themselves from God because of the guilt of their sin. It's, Saint Nectarius says they will never find peace. I remember a cousin of mine years ago, um, she, she um, said, she was older than me, she said, I remember I was there, must have been a bit young, but anyway, I heard her, and she was beating her chest and she was going, I want peace, I want peace. But she never would go to church. And what happened, I don't know, because I didn't see her later on. And that's not just her, as a lot of people, they want peace. But peace can only be given by God when we reconcile with him through our efforts to repent, confess, do the commandments, etc., Holy Communion. But when that doesn't happen, then don't people expect to find peace. Now you might say, but the Hare Krishnas don't commune and they're in peace. The Jehovah Witnesses, they're, they're really peaceful. They are peaceful, I must admit. And the other ones, the um, ones on the bikes, the Seventh-day Adventists, the uh, Mormons, whatever they are, they're very peaceful as well. Have you seen how they peace have a book? They look like, some people said, they look, they look like angels. And I said, I know they do, but St. Paul does say that even an angel of, even the devil can appear as an angel of light. So let's look at that. Let's look at that. Where's this peace come from? Peace can come from self-esteem. In other words, a person loves themselves and they're going to have peace. A person can be just, just satisfied with themselves and have peace. But you know what? When things don't go right, those, that peace goes away. But St. Nectarius, when he was persecuted and slandered, and they said all those things from him, he kept his peace because his peace came from God. That's why we see some people who have faith in God and you see them in hospital, they're dying of cancer and they're peaceful and they're not even medicated. And then you've got others who are tormented, they just, they just fear and they've got no peace. And even though they're even on, some of them have to be sedated so much so as to shut them up because they, don't, because they make a lot of noise in the hospital and things like that. That's not proper. Peace comes from God. Christ said, peace I give unto you, not the peace that the world gives, but the true peace. When I was younger, a bit in my prideful days, I was at a relative's place. And I don't, I'm not telling you to, to, to do this. I think I've mentioned it before. Right? That's silly what I did. Just, that's a wrong thing. 
But as we said, sometimes we're a bit cocky and we think, you know. Anyway, so these Jehovah Witnesses come to the door and um, they said, we've come to talk about Christ. And I said to them, which now I always teach, never talk to them, you just shut the door. Because they're what's called true believers. True believers mean that they believe that they've got the truth and they won't change. And when you, when you call them names and persecute them, they actually think that they are suffering for righteousness' sake, like it says in the Bible. So they do not change. It's very hard for them to change. Anyway, I was being a bit silly. I was young. And I said, well, how about this? Do you believe in this? They went back like this. There's no exaggeration. They went back and then he fell over the fence. Right? <laughs> As I said, don't do that, it's not right. But that's what I did. I said, do you believe in this? And I went like that. And that's what they, they went, like, you know those vampire movies? Oh. And they went back and they nearly fell, up, fell behind the, um, the... They actually nearly fell over the fence and they, and, and they left. So, where was the peace then? Another time when I was a priest, I was walking to the station to go to church. So I was walking along. And as I was walking up, I saw this man talking to another man. And the man was holding booklets. And the man was saying, if Christ is God, then why does he call him son? Or son? I don't know, some things like that. He was trying to make the person confused. So I was walking along, and again, I don't say anything, but that time I don't know what, what came over me. So the guy was, so he said, so the, it was a job witness, and he said, so if Christ is God, I'm trying to quote things from the Bible to mix the person up. And the person was saying, so why does he say that? How can he be God? Because the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Christ is God. So they're trying to convince him and confuse him from the Bible. And the man was going, um, um. So as I was walking past, I go, because you're mad. And I walked, <laughs> and I walked, and I just walked on. I just walked on. And he goes, hey, where, where? And so where, and he was like, he started walking behind me and I was walking down the station, completely ignored him, completely ignored him, but that person had no peace, you see. So, yes, they're, but St. Nectarius and the saints, even in, in slander and all the problems they went through, they had true peace. I don't know, just came to me, I just, uh, and, and, oh, sorry, I didn't tell you the other part. Yeah, so as I was walking past, the guy goes, so how can that be? And the guy was going, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And he goes, I said, because you're mad. And the guy goes, that's right, because you're mad. <laughs> that's, I remember that. So I helped him out. So um, as I said, don't do those things. It's not right. Just keep away from because they got demonic energy. A lot of them have got demonic energy. And the demons can actually jump on you. And it's happened to me too. Don't, just don't involve yourself with those people. That's just a, a couple of things to show you that the peace wasn't there. So, St. Nectarius says, even the ancient Greeks considered confession necessary and beneficial. So he's using his, his, his knowledge of the ancient Greeks now because they would confess their sins before they were initiated into certain pagan mysteries. So when they would do certain pagan things, one of the things that they believe is that they have to cleanse themselves of their sins. Interesting. And he said, 
Socrates spoke of confession as salvific, as saving. He said, this is what Socrates said, if he is unjust, I mean the person, if he's done something wrong, he should willingly go there where he will give an account as quickly as possible as if to a doctor, hastening so that the ailment of injustices does not remain for a long period of time and render the soul infected and incurable. This is from a pagan that he actually came close to the understanding of confession in the same way as the Orthodox Church teaches. It says, when you've done something wrong, go wherever they, whatever they did, confess your sins as to a doctor so that your soul doesn't stay infected and incurable. Pythagoras would also say, says St. Nectarius, he quotes Pythagoras, says, do not attempt to cover your sins with words. Don't make excuses. But treat them with self-condemnation. How embarrassing. This is, that's why I'm putting it. That, that these pagans understood the soul better than a lot of Orthodox Christians today. And St. Nectarius goes on and says, And Aristotle states, The person who confesses the sin committed honestly brings himself to a state not far from sinlessness, which is also the teaching of the church. Now can we see why the, the, the Holy Fathers used these quotes and praised these pagans as being people who had no idea of the, of the Hebrew religion, the Christian religion, because it wasn't Christ, hadn't come yet, and yet they got so close to, to, the, to the truth. Now to me, that's embarrassing that pagans understand the soul better than today Orthodox Christians. Look at that. Treat your sins with self-condemnation. Don't attempt to cover your sins with excuses. That's exactly what the church teaches. That's exactly what St. Nectarius just taught. The person who confesses the sin committed honestly brings himself to a state not far from sinlessness. That's Aristotle and Pythagoras, as I said before, do not attempt to cover your sins, etc. Many of the most ancient civilizations, St. Nectarius says, having sinned, would offer sacrifices to God in order to appease him. As they offered these sacrifices, they would confess their sins. So even though they never had the true religion, civilizations from even the most ancient times, their soul told them, they felt in their soul, sorry, that they had a need to confess their sins and receive some type of cleansing. So St. Nectarius says, if that is the case in all the civilizations of the world, how do we have morons today that say that confession is unnecessary? Even people when they used to go to psychiatrists, and still do, some of them have that need just to go and tell the person about themselves. And even that gives them some relief. So this is built in the person. So all these atheists like Stalin and all the other ones that exist today who say, oh, these things, and why should, why should we feel guilty for what we've done? Why should the Christians make us feel guilty, etc.? Well, it's, it's not that the Christians make... That you can wipe out Christianity, but the thing is that people will still feel guilty for their sins. See, the gays, for example, they say uh, in their stupidity, they say... Um, that, oh, we're not happy where because people don't accept us and they put us down and they try and make us feel guilty that what we're doing is wrong. 
and yet, and they say, and that's why there's a lot of uh, suicides amongst the gay teenagers. They, they're pushing that so they can pass their laws. But yet the question arises, in San Francisco, where it's basically free for all, do whatever you want, everything's free, no one judges you, etc., and in other countries in Northern Europe, where it's really accepted, their suicide rates are the highest. So why are these teenagers committing suicide? And why are a lot of gays feel this, that they're not happy because the world doesn't accept them? And they blame the Christians and the religion. They say it's religion which is making us feel this way because they judge us. And the answer to that is as follows. The reason why they feel bad and they don't feel peace is because within them, regardless of what anyone says, they themselves know that what they're doing is wrong. It's deep in their soul. They know that it's wrong. And that's why they've got that guilt. And the ones that do abortions, or everyone, all those people that they say, oh, why should the church make us feel guilty? It's the church doesn't have to because you don't believe in the church anyway, but the thing is that you, it comes from within. Because it says, as St. Nectarius says, this, this guilt, this need for relief and this feeling of what's wrong comes from within the soul and it's been in every civilization from the start of time. The person, St. Nectarius says, who does not confess, confess his sins will never find peace because he will never draw near to God. The person who does not confess his sin finds himself continually under the, under the weight of guilt and distance from God. This is why the soul suffers and pains and seeks relief by proclaiming, in other words, by confessing its sin. Some people just want to say it even to others and say, look, this is what I've done. I've done this and I feel guilty because I don't know about confession, for example. Even that makes them feel better. It comes from within. And St. Nectarius is saying clearly that we will never find peace unless we reconcile with God. And that is a lot of the reasons why today people are the most, the more, you see, these atheists are saying, yippee, you know, everyone's going away from the church because the church is bad and people less and less believe in, in religion. Like Australia now, it's only like a, a smaller percentage than before which are Christian. So they say, that's good, that's good because religion is sickness and it makes people sick and it makes people guilty, etc., but what's happening? A lot of children that have been brought up in these last few decades have had nothing to do with religion. Their parents don't believe. They never went to church. These children have nothing to do. Now they're grown up. And what's happening in society today? Happiness. They haven't got any religion to make them feel guilty. They don't read the Bible. So, but yet, but yet we have so many people depressed and so many people committing suicide and so many people have no life in them. You look at today, 16, 17 year olds, but they should be bright and beautiful from, you know, like vibrant from youthfulness and yet they look old. That's the truth. Unless someone's got a better explanation. What's the explanation? Stalin tried. He tried. He really wiped religion out from Russia, Ukraine, etc., all those, all those countries that he, that he took control of illegally. Mm? And what happened after? 
they all came back to the church. Why? Because, because the atheism gave no life, gave no peace, gave nothing. That's why when you see someone dying in hospital doesn't believe, what's, what's their hope? They don't even got nothing. They don't even believe in the next life. They're just dying there. So what's the solution for them? Pump them with drugs so they can be out of it when, when they die. Break uh, for two, three minutes. And then we have another little session and then we're finished. Another book that he did is called Know Thyself or Religious and Ethical Studies. Now, in this book, which is another embarrassment, of course, is, of course, he would have based a lot of his um, uh, writings on a lot of the philosophers of what we just read before. He says here, self-knowledge is man's foremost duty. Now, why this is important is because today people are scared to know themselves. See, those philosophers, all those pagans, they really strove to know themselves and had a thirst for the truth. And today, somehow, people's souls have been deadened from the television and stuff like that. It really deadens the soul. And when children are exposed to it from young, and they brought up in this imagination, fantasy and things like that, and they don't really have a, a, um, a uh, desire to look for the truth and to know themselves. He who does not know himself does not know God, says St Nectarius. If you don't learn much tonight, he who does not know himself does not know God. And he who does not know God does not know the truth and the nature of things in general. He who does not know himself continually sins, sins against God and continually moves further away from him. As a priest, one of the biggest problems that I have when I'm dealing with people is trying to help people to know themselves. And I've had a lot of problems with that, that people do not want to know the truth about themselves. That's why people drink a lot of times, people take drugs, people go onto the internet and pornography or in these chat rooms or internet, all these knowing people or pretending you're someone that you're not. A lot of these things come from people not wanting to know themselves. The world today is teaching people to be someone else but not yourself. See, Christianity and even the ancient Greek pagans had as their basis to know yourself. That was the thing. Know thyself. That was a teaching. But today that, that's not happening much. And people who don't want to know themselves are continually running. And when you try to help them to see what they're doing, their motivation or whatever, they become very agitated, they become disturbed, they become paranoid, 
They don't like their friends, especially if their friends are trying to help them, and they become like uh, people who are out of control. And this is why St. Nectarius says that... And, and, and what I've noticed is that the ones who are blind to themselves cannot lead a spiritual life. That is, a, that is true. Those people can't repent. Those people can't pray. Those people cannot read even spiritual books properly. can't do anything. Because of what? So they want to become these big Christians or become holy, but yet... They don't want to know themselves. So, for example, you've got a husband and wife. Oh, how many times this, this husband and wife situations. Sometimes I get sick because it's really bad. When, and I remember years ago when I, when I went to a priest, when I was a lay person, and I said to the priest, I'm thinking to become a priest. And it's the first thing he says to me, he goes, do you know he goes, what it's like to have a husband and a wife sitting in front of you and you're trying to help them and they're just ripping each other apart. And, you know, he said that to me, but I was a bit naive of that. But I found, but I found out the, long, the, the hard way that that is so true. And a lot of that bickering, that fighting that goes on is to do that, that people are blind to themselves. They don't want to know themselves. Which is more of what we're going to do in the next talk. There's always motivations, there's always slyness, etc. You know, it's just, it's not, a, it's so wonderful when you're dealing with people who, when you say to them, you know, as a priest, you say to them, as a priest, I want to say to you, say you say to the husband, I think that at that part that you were being selfish because you wanted to go fishing instead of you wanted to do such and such, so you made up an excuse, and that's why your wife's upset. For example, no, I didn't. No, I don't. That's not true. Sometimes you feel like just going across their face and say, wake up. You know, you just wake up to yourself. You're losing your marriage. Marriages are being lost a lot now because people are blind to their real self. They're scared to go into themselves. Because why are they scared? Because they don't know, they don't want to see what's in themselves. Elder Porfirios, the Greek Holy Father, said that psychiatrists did a wrong thing. People used to go to psychiatrists and the psychiatrists would do what's called this Freudian type of thing where they'd sit down. And you remember those, you know, those films, you see them on the couch lying down, lying down and opening up their past and their childhood because they believed that a lot of the problems stem from problems in the childhood, not sins, problems. Because psychiatrists don't believe things are sins. Some problem, some fear, something happened when they were young and it's locked up inside. So they lie on these couches for years, pay a lot of money, and then suddenly the person will come to a realisation, oh, I remember now, my father didn't love me or whatever, or he loved my, my, my brother more than me or something there. And what happens is a lot of the times these people would become would actually enter schizophrenia. They would actually become sicker. Now, Elder Porfirio said that's wrong. Self-knowledge, sorry, and that's why now they don't do that anymore. Now they do cognitive behavioural therapy and just medication. 
So medication, they say, okay, look, you've obviously got something wrong with you inside, which of course they don't think it could be even sin. There could be some trauma there, but let's say they don't consider sin. So they give, give them pills to make them not feel. Don't feel the pain. Elder Porfirio says that that is dangerous when a person starts to see themselves without God's grace to be there to heal at the same time. That's why Orthodox Christians who are struggling, or even Buddhists to some degree, because they, they're into know that, to know yourself, even they, in their limited way, they actually do concert on knowing themselves, even they get to some level, not to the level of, 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 of Christianity, but to some level, because they are working, like the pagans did in the Greek philosophers, there, to know themselves. Elder, uh, um, but their religions believes in reincarnation, that they're going to come back as onions and come back as <laughs> butterflies and come back as goannas and who knows the, what else. But that's, a, that's another thing. But they do have the thing about knowing themselves. However, in the Orthodox Church, this is important. When a, Father Elder Porfirio says, when a person struggles in the church does his prayers, communes, confesses, um, does, struggles with the passions, tries to keep the commandments, slowly, slowly the person will begin to gain self-knowledge and because they have the grace, they will have the humility to be able to say, okay, I can see that I'm a really, really selfish person. I'm a person who... Um, hates people or whatever. You know, they begin to see themselves. But because they've got the grace and they understand that God forgives and there's healing, they don't become devastated and jump off cliffs or commit suicide or go into mental institutions. But the others that go into these places and they open up themselves, they're opening up and they find in there things that are not very pleasant. An Orthodox Christian shouldn't be scared to find out about themselves whether they've got fear, whether there's, there's some other passion in there of jealousy or hate or envy or revenge. That's why when I've dealt with people in the, in the years when they've come to the church, they say things like, I never knew this was in me. I never knew this was in me. I said, okay, so what? But I'm really evil, I'm really bad. I go, but if, when we read the lives of the saints, what do we notice? that they themselves confessed those things. They themselves realised that they had these things in them and they struggled. That's why they wrote those prayers. Those prayers, didn't, they didn't write the prayers for us, where they say, God, forgive me who am evil and I've got this passion and I'm jealous and I've got hate and I don't care about my neighbour and I'm always thinking about myself. All these prayers that they wrote, they wrote from their own heart, which means that they felt it themselves. When St. Seraphim Sarov says that he's a sinner, or St. Nectarius, they mean it. They felt it because they went into their souls and found all that rubbish and all the passions that were in there and slowly, slowly struggled with them. It's wrong and it's um, blasphemy to actually think that our passions and our sins are so evil that God's not going to forgive us. So in the church is where, we, is where we struggle and with the grace of God, which is healing, when we do realise ourselves, we don't fall into despair. 
But we say, yes, that's what I've got. But God will rep- God forgives everything and I'm going to struggle. And sometimes we might struggle with these passions which are hidden inside of us for years. Some people say, I've been in the church for 20 years and I've still got that passion of jealousy. So what? What does that mean? Because oh, what is it? doesn't matter. You keep on struggling. As long as you're struggling and repenting and struggling to overcome it, that's what God wants. So, we have to know ourselves to come closer to God. The more that we don't know ourselves, the farther we are away from him. Those who know themselves, says St. Nectarius, are praised in writings as wise. Even, And that's when he says writings as wise, he means the ancient Greek philosophers and biblical writings, etc. The writer of the Proverbs, Solomon, says, quote, Those who know themselves are wise. And he advises, know thyself and walk in the ways of your heart blameless. We can only begin to come closer to God when we know ourselves and admit the things that are in us and repent, etc., and ask God for healing. And then St. Nectarius ends by saying, clearly then, self-knowledge is the beginning of all virtue and wisdom. Spiritual life starts with self-knowledge. That's why a lot of people that are got some psychiatric problems that they find very difficult the spiritual life because sometimes the reason for their problem is that they don't want to know themselves. So schizophrenia, for example, a lot of times there are, there are schizophrenia which comes from physical problems like some mental imbalance. But sometimes schizophrenia just comes a person who's, who has a wrong view of himself, fantasy, and when they come to a reality that they're not who they think they are, they enter into this world of uh, fantasy. So they become like sick. They prefer to be sick. They prefer to be in their delusion. And that's why a lot of schizophrenics, they are delusional. They're delusional. Because as the saints say, that there's like a, a lot of psychiatric hospitals that have got a lot of these people, a lot of them are people who say, I'm God, I'm Christ, I'm Buddha. I'm special, I'm rich, I'm this, I'm that. Delusion. Because, I don't know, some of them from television, some of them from even the way they were brought up. Some of them, I've, I've actually noticed that when you kind of know a bit about their life, they say, oh, from young, my mother used to say, you're the best. You are the best. No one is like you. You're fantastic. You're great. You're this, you're that. And that poor child, when he's been brainwashed like that from young and he grows up, he believes that he's the best. They make, so they say to them, like um, like this guy that I met, and he said to me, um, well, he's sick, he's, he's uh, schizophrenic now. He actually said that um, he believed that he was a soccer player and that he was going to become, he was going to go to Serbia or somewhere to become in the, in the, in the team that plays with the world, whatever, whatever they are. I don't know much about those things. Oh, I know they kick a ball around. But anyway, he, wanted, he thought he was going to go over there and become this thing. And then when he, when he, when he realised that he wasn't who he thought he was, what his parents pumped him to believe that you're going to be this big soccer player, he actually went into like a psychological crisis and he just stays in his room. So he doesn't go anywhere because he can't cope with knowing himself. So this is why there's a lot of sickness. And of course, as I said, there are people who have been traumatised who were sexually abused, emotionally abused when they were young. I'm not talking about them. They are, they are, I'm talking about people who just from sins and their own pride 
don't want to know themselves. There's a lot of reasons why people are sick. I'm talking about one part of that population. And in a way, we've all got some form of schizophrenia some way because whenever we don't want to know ourselves and whenever we prefer to be in a delusion, that's schizophrenia. That's what the church says. That people prefer to be in a, in a fantasy. Christianity disapproves of and opposes those who are under the influence of imagination, says St. Nectarius. St. Nectarius was really against those who spiritual life was their imagination, like I was saying before. He says, God reveals himself to the humble. When we teach our children humility from young, they grow up like Elder Porphyrius' mother, who rarely praised him, loved him, yes, but didn't praise him in this thing. And up now it's just all the time. Oh, darling, can you put that on the table? Oh, good, excellent, fantastic, you're the best. Like, what's that for? All the child is put it on the table there. And they got these games. I had to get it, like the doctor said, I had to get an exercise bike because of certain problems. Anyway, so I was there. So I'm on the bike a bit, I'm doing the bike, and then I'm sick. Was a lot of times I'm sick, so I only did one minute. So I can't, so I can't do it. I'm going, I'm going to vomit. So I turn, so I, I stop. Then the, then the machine says, fantastic workout. <laughs> fantastic workout. I go, oh, thank you. One minute is like, the, like that. And that's what they've got in the children's games or on the internet. It's like, good, excellent. You're the best. You're this, you're that. Oh, continue, continue, continue. Now, we might laugh at that. And well, when I'm, I'm an adult, so I can say to say, who are you trying to kid? Fantastic work, I only did one minute. But children, when they're brought up from young in that, in that brainwashing, that's what they grow up to be. And that's why a lot of children today are sick. When they enter adulthood, because schizophrenia comes at the early, early, sorry, towards the late teenage years and early 20s, what happens at that time? School finishes, go into adulthood. They've got to now become, like a, they've got to work. They got to, uh, you know, some of them get married and this and that. They can't cope with the reality. They get sick. What's the reality? The reality is that they're not who they think they are. So they watch TV and they say, okay, that's a relationship. That's how relationships are. When I get a girlfriend or when I get married, I'm going to be this, this great person, this great lover, etc. So they enter the relationship and find out that marriage means taking out the garbage. Marriage means to change nappies. Marriage means to, for the man to sometimes to understand that the woman has certain emotional times. For, for the woman to understand that the man sometimes is closed. When you've got a lot of problems at work, men come home, they're closed, like a clam, you know, like an oyster, when they're closed. So they're closed. And then it's coming, but this is not what I saw on TV. I saw these all these images and on the internet that it was all to do with certain things. No. So they can't, they can't cope. So what do they do? They go into divorces or they have an internet relationship. And they pretend. So you've got old codgers there that are 40, 50, 60 that are pretending that they're 22-year-old guys or women the same thing. 
So they, 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 they say, okay, my family's asleep. I'm going to go to the internet now and live my, my fantasy life. So as they take out their dentures, because they're so old, <laughs> they start typing like this and pretending that they're 21 years old or something. You laugh, don't you? It's interesting. But let's not hope that, that, that some of you... 80% of divorces in America now is due to Facebook. Right? People have been killed because of those type of things. There was an old, there was an old woman in America who did that. And she got one guy... She was pretending to be a 16-year-old, which was really her daughter. And she was talking to another guy who was pretending to be a 22-year-old, but he was really 50. And then she, when she found that out, then she went with another guy who was a friend of the 50-year-old. So they made, and through that, she made them jealous. And then she, made the, she actually pushed the 50-year-old to kill the, the, 20 year old, the 22-year-old guy. Both had never seen her, and it was an old bag that was living in another city, right, who was around 50, who was posting pictures of herself as, a, as her 18-year-old daughter. Her daughter didn't even know. So these are people who have gone, and you might say, oh, that's exceptional. It's not. People have lost themselves. People need to be in a fantasy because a lot of times when we were young, what was our, how were we brought up? In front of the television, everything was fantasy. Whether it was Bugs Money or whatever, everything was fantasy. None of that thing was real. And that's how people are used to. They have to be in the fantasy. So the internet world is a, is, can actually fulfil that fantasy. Okay, in 1911 1912, St Nectarius published two-volume masterpiece of 566 pages entitled a historical study concerning the causes of the schism, the concerning its continuation and concerning the possibility or impossibility of the union of the two churches, the Eastern and the Western. So, some of you don't know, but in 1895, the Pope of Rome, in, mem in kind of jubilee, in his um, celebration of his jubilee, what's jubilee, is that 30 years? I think the Queen's Diamond Jubilee was 60 so I don't know what a jubilee... Does anyone know? Jubil 50, is it? Anyway, he must have been a pope for 50. So, in, so as a, to, to celebrate that, he sent out to all the churches in the world, including Orthodox, a letter. It's called an, an encyclical. And in that encyclical, he says to everyone, they have to join the, 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 the Catholic Church. That salvation can only be found in the, uh, under the pope. They can believe whatever they want, he said, but as long as they join the Catholic Church and recognise him as the head of the church. That happened in 1895. So St Nectarius had been concerned by the publication of this, this encyclical and others. And, and, what these, and also in the encyclical, the Pope said that the, that the great schism between the Orthodox and the Catholics was the Orthodox fault. Also... Um, uh, in these encyclicals, the Eastern Orthodox Church was invited to recognise the primacy of the Pope and to become united with the Roman Catholic Church in the sense of complete subjection to it. In other words, the Catholic Church believes that for someone to be saved, as long as they're under the Pope, they'll be saved. St Nectarius says the reason why he wrote these books was the search for the truth and only the truth and to proclaim the truth for the defence of the right of the Eastern Church, in other words, the Orthodox Church. St. Nectarius said, I want to examine the history of exactly what happened in, in when the Church is split. Because, 
he says, clever like theologians of the Western Church, clever lawyer-like theologians of the Western Church who deal with the subject in a legalistic manner, as if they're solicitors, blame the Eastern Orthodox Church for the causes of the schism and the reason why the churches still to this day are apart. So he calls the theologians of the Western Church clever lawyer-like, and that's true, that's how they are. Now, I'll tell you what that means. Uh, politicians, a lot of them were ex-lawyers. So those politicians, you can, they, can do some, they can say something wrong or do something wrong and they're caught out, and then when the media goes up to them and says, you know, you did this, you said that, they go, no, no, and they just make up this whole story and distort it, and that's what lawyers do. They're very good at Some of them are very gifted. They can actually distort the truth. That's why a lot of people get off, because they've got intelligent barristers or big law trial lawyers in America here. And if you're rich, you've got to give a lot of money, you get the best, the, the best, um, the best, um, I've got to not use the inappropriate word, the best um, liar, basically, and that comes along and defends you and you get off because they can make the jury believe anything. They can make the jury believe that, that there exist some leprechauns. They, they can do whatever, they can do anything. So that's what he's saying about the West, these Western, the Western church is that the theologians get all the dogmas of the church and all the teachings, even the angels, and they distort it and they come up and say, the church has always believed that the Pope is the head of the church. He writes, I wrote this study so as to reveal the distortion of the truth against the Eastern Orthodox Church, the various insults to which she has been subjected and the trampling down of her rights by fanatical followers of the Pope. Their arrogant and unjust expressions, how they, how they talk about us, being distortions of the truth and justice against our holy church and her hierarchy are based on the notion of papal supremacy. Because papal supremacy means that the Pope is the head of the church. This is unheard of. This is not how it was. This started in the 9th century, which is the reason why there was a split. Um, St Nectarius outlines in his work that the, that the, that the Pope's followers have persecuted the Orthodox. We know that in Serbia during the Second World War. Nearly one million Orthodox were killed. The, um, the problem with the Uniates in the Ukraine where they dress up like Orthodox but they're, but they're Catholics, tricking people and making them come to the Catholic Church. The, the biggest enemy of the Orthodox Church for centuries has always been the Roman Catholic Church. That's, a, that's, that's, a, that's the truth. Now, we don't blame the ordinary people, who people who believe in their own way um, what their church. We are looking at the institution of the papacy, not the ordinary people that believe in Christ in their way. Except we're not talking about them. We're talking about the institution of the papacy. They are... Remember what I said to you in a few talks before? Greece, the Orthodox, the Byzantine, the Byzantine Empire had two choices: either to go under the Pope and get help from him against the Turks, or to go under the Turks. 
the Pope said, I'll send you my army to protect you from the, um, from the, from, from the Turks. This is back in the 1300s when they were attacking all different areas of the Byzantine Empire. The Pope said, I'll send you the army, but only under one condition you, you, you come and kiss my slipper that you recognise me as the head. And the Orthodox said no. Said better to be under the turban of the Turks than under the, the mitre, the tiara, the, whatever they use, of the Pope. Because, as I said before, the Orthodox say, the Turk, you can always bribe them. You can give them money and bribe them. Can't bribe the Papists. The Papists have a mania to convert the people of the Orthodox Church to their church. Even to the point of killing people and torturing them, as we know. So the Orthodox chose to be under the Turks. And they were under the Turks. Even up to Serbia, Bulgaria, all that lot of those. 500 years. And the bottom of Greece there, the southern area, 400 years. And yet, Orthodoxy came out of it. If we were under them, there would be no Orthodox Church left today. That's, that's the difference. His study of the causes of the schism leads him to the following conclusions. Quote, he says, It was the Roman Church which opened the gulf of separation by changing the nature of the Church. Through the institution of the primacy of the Pope, the Papal Church no longer teaches the doctrines of the Holy Apostles, but rather teaches those of the Pope, Popes. So St. Nathanael is saying that the reason for the separation is that the Roman Church changed the idea of what the Church is, which will go on. The three most important causes are, one, the arrogant and anti-canonical claims concerning the primacy of the Popes of Rome, which are opposed to the spirit of the one holy Catholic Church that is expressed in Holy Scripture and guarded by the seven holy ecumenical synods. So there, what he's trying to say here is that the popes, the church, the Catholic Church says that the pope is higher than the scriptures, the pope is higher than the, than the ecumenical councils. The pope is the church. Number two, says St. Nectarius, not me, the innovations, that means all the changes that they've made, have been made through which the Roman Church has gone away from the Orthodox, the universal, in other words, and apostolic church. Examples. They don't baptise anymore. They sprinkle. They don't use leavened, uh, leavened bread, which is bread with yeast. They use the wafers with no yeast. They, um, they believe in purgatory. Orthodox don't believe in that. They believe in the Immaculate Conception, where they make the Mother of God basically uh, more than what she is. Chrismation. For example, in, in Orthodox Church, when the baby is baptised, they're chrismated at the same time they receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. From then on, the child can commune. In the Roman Catholic Church, the child is baptised, or sort of, sorry, sprinkled. So the child is sprinkled, but they're not chrismated. They're not given the gifts of the Holy Spirit, so they can't commune. And that's why they wait till they get older, around 12, 13, and that's what's called their first communion. That's when the bishop gives them the Holy Spirit as they believe, and then they're allowed to commune. The Orthodox Church says, no, the two go together. Baptism goes together with chrismation. They don't believe in that. But, number th um, and most important, 
the change of the creed. The Orthodox say, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceed us from the Father, who the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, they say, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. They change the creed, which is forbidden by the first, by the ecumenical councils, where well, this, this particular one came in the second and thereafter. They, um, they, they changed it. They said, no, no, we know more than the Holy Fathers of the first centuries and we understand theology better than them and we're going to change it. Even though Christ himself, that's Christ's words. Christ said, and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. That's the, what, what, and they changed it because they say they're advanced in their theology and then they get, they're, they're clever like lawyer um, theologians and they make up these writings and people believe them. Number three, the annulling of the validity of the Holy Synods, which are alone able to possess the truth of the church. They say the, the ecumenical councils are no longer the authority. Who's the authority? That's right, the Pope. The saint's work is fully against papal supremacy, that he's the head, and the addition of the creed. He also opposed the innovations introduced by the Papists and the annulling and the validity of, of the and the annulling cancel. In other words, saying that the ecumenical councils are no longer an authority. So that's what he blames the, 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 the schism. Now, those of you who read the lives of saints, the first pope who did that was Pope Nicholas I, who was still in the Orthodox Church. He fought against Photius the Great, and he was saying that to the Greeks. Um, we, I am the head of the church. And the Fortius the Great says, no, you're not the head of the church. You are one of the bishops. This is how it's always been for nine centuries. He says, no, I am the head of the church. Because they base it... They base it on... Uh, that quote. It says there that... Um, Thou art Peter... And upon this rock I will build my church. When Christ, when Christ asked Peter, who am I? And he says, you are the son of the living God. And Christ said to him, thou art Peter, and, I, and upon this rock I will build my church. The Catholics come along, the Roman, the Papists, and say, see, that means that Peter is the head of the church. But that's not correct because the, the church of the first nine centuries always taught, and they know that, no father, no holy father of the first nine centuries ever said that. All the holy fathers of the church knew that what it was meant by the confession of Peter, that Christ is God, is the foundation of the church, not Peter himself. And therefore, they have distorted that. And by the way, this is what they think about the Pope. They say that he is the prince of the universal church and the infallible judge means that he doesn't make mistakes. That's, that dogma came, I think, in 1870. That he doesn't make, when he sits on his throne, he doesn't make mistakes. Whatever he says is from God. But we say, no, 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 bishops can make mistakes. Ecumenical councils don't make mistakes. Where all the bishops from all around the world get together, that's what is the authority of the church, 
not one bishop, because we know that even bishops that were of Rome in the past made mistakes and taught heresy, as well as other bishops in the Greek church or whatever. No bishop has the right to change dogmas and to do whatever he wants and to be in charge. That's why our church is safe. The Patriarch of Constantinople, for example, he cannot go to Russia and boss Russian, the Russians around. He is, we say, but he's the head of the church. He is the first among equals. In other words, he's given, because he's from the ancient city of Constantinople, we say he is the first in just honour, like in like position. But the church, every bishop is equal. He doesn't have authority. With the Pope, he had no authority. He was just given, when they would sit together, like they would say, okay, the Pope being from Rome, he could be first, and then Constantinople, and then Alexandria, and then, I don't know, Antioch, Jerusalem, I can't remember the order. So today, when Orthodox bishops get together, the first bishop is that of Constantinople. The second one will be whatever, whatever, whatever. And the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, they have order, just for order. It doesn't mean that one is superior to the other. But they're trying to say that... Um, that thing, as I said, that um, he's infallible, um, that he is the successor of apostle of the apostle Peter, and vicar of Jesus Christ on earth. In other words, that they say Christ is in heaven. It's like they're saying Christ is in heaven, but on earth it's the Pope. But we say the the, the church is the is the body of Christ. So now. Something which is very important for us to um, ask, will there ever be union? Because we know today that a lot of the churches are in the hands of ecumenists. They are wanting this union. There are e e um, ecumenists everywhere. There's ecumenists in the Serbian church, in the Greek church, in the Russian church. There's a, not all of them, but there are some who have that notion that we're going to join together. Of course we want to join together as long as they join under the teachings of the Orthodox Church because we haven't changed anything for the last 2,000 years. If they want to, to do that, then we join. But if they want to join and they can just believe whatever they want, so in other words, we say to the Protestants, you come and join with us, doesn't matter what you believe. Yes, we believe in the Mother of God, we venerate her, you blaspheme her. We say that we commune body and blood. You say you commune of bread and wine. How can we be together? Anyway, well, that's what I'm saying, but let's see what St Nectarius says about the union. That's a big burning question. He was asked that question. St Nectarius, do you think that one day the Roman Catholic Church will unite with the Orthodox Church? Because there was even ecumenism in those days started. Now it's gone to the point of madness. Now they don't just try and join with um, just with the Roman Catholic. Now they're going to join with Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, Mu Muslims, um, everything. Fire worshippers. They just all pray together and we're all going to join one day. That's blasphemy. So who should we listen to? Should we listen to the bishop's all the clergy, some of them who say we, that we will unite, yes, the union will occur. 
Or should we listen to people like St. Eustin Povich, St. Nectarius and all our great saints whose relics are incorrupt, who do miracles, who are enlightened by God? Or the modernists of today that have got positions high in all churches and are scandalising the faithful, telling them all these ridiculous things. One person here said to me one day, Oh, Father, I have a thought. I have a thought that you're against bishops. I don't know, but, and I don't want to believe it, but I think that you're against bishops. And I said, you're wrong. I am. I am against bishops who are teaching heresy. If I was against bishops, then why am I doing the life of St. Nectarius who's a bishop? Why am I quoting from all different fathers who are bishops? Why do I talk about St. Nikolai Velomirich who was a Serbian saint, a bishop? And we have so many other great saints of the Orthodox Church who were bishops. St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, whose relics today are still incorrupt. He died in the 60s. He's over there in San Francisco. Why does he... I forgot to mention the other day. Why did his body remain incorrupt? So many other saints didn't. Why? Because he was the bishop of one of the most sinful cities in the world, which is San Francisco. And he's there as a confession of the Orthodox faith right in the, in the middle of that sinful place, which is really bad, you've got the Russian church there with the relics of a person who did not decompose and who does miracles. What did St. John say? What did St. Nectarius say? What did St. Nikolai say? What are all these great saints? They're the ones we should look at, not what these modernists say. Who don't even know what day it is, a lot of them out of it. Anyway, let's get to the point. With regard to the question of the possibility of the union between the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, St. Nectarius writes, and take note, the conditions for the union are such that they render the union impossible. Because, he says, each church asks of the other nothing but the negation of itself. I'll explain that in a minute. For the Western Church is based on the primacy of the Pope, while the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, rests on the ecumenical councils, synods. In other words, this is, what, this is, this is the way it is. The Orthodox say, are saying to the Pope, to the, to the Roman Catholic Church, if you want to join with us, you have to get rid of that belief that you've got that the Pope is the head of the church, which is the basis of their church. The Roman Catholics say back to the Orthodox, if you want to join with us, then you're not allowed to recognise the ecumenical councils, synods, as the authority, but you have to recognise the Pope as the authority. So therefore, how can there be union? It's completely different basis. The Orthodox Church is based on the councils, the ecumenical councils. The Catholic Church is based on the primacy of the Pope, that he's infallible, that he's the head, etc. So, therefore, there will be no union. And as the Roman Catholic Church proceeds on, this Pope supremacy is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. When he came here to Sydney, to Australia, and when he went over to America, in all those things, it was always the same message, the successor of St Peter, 
the head of the church, the prince of the church, the vicar of Christ. They preach it, preach it, preach it wherever they go. They're not going to change. And the Orthodox Church is not going to change. Now, the, the ecumenists of the Orthodox Church might, but people aren't going to follow them. For example, there was on the YouTube a video of a, um, when uh, some Orthodox, well, what are they, Bulgarian, Serbs, even Serbians, I think some Bulgarian, even bishops, was it Bulgarian? It was Romanian. Um, they, they went to meet the Pope and the Orthodox bishops were kissing his hand, saying, you are superior to us. This whole heap of, uh, like a whole busload of Serbian priests went to Rome. And all of them did prostrations and were kissing his, the Pope's hand. And saying, you are the Holy Father. So, for those who like to say, oh, but you know, you're against this. I am against. Of course I'm against. That's my, that's my, that's my responsibility. If I don't say that, then I'm going to give word. And the last section, he wrote another book, we're finishing, on the Protestant church, just quickly. He called it two studies, one, concerning the one Holy Catholic Church, and two, concerning sacred tradition. In this book, the saint examines how the Protestants have moved away from the true church, the Orthodox church, in other words. So he did a book on the Roman Catholics, but he also did a book on the Protestants, saying they've also gone off. This is this, is this great saint, this holy, spiritual, humble person, is just condemning everyone. But yet people say today, that can't be right because saints don't condemn. Saints don't say these things. Like, that, like the abbot of a monastery when I was in Greece. Remember him? I mentioned him before. When I was talking to him one day, I was a lay person, I was talking to him about ecumenism, and I said, oh, you know, St. Eustine Povovich, I said, he used to speak against ecumenism. He goes, no, no, no. He says to me, do you know who Eustine Povovich is? I go, what, who? Because Eustin Povich would sit in the corner and he wouldn't speak at all. He said, he only did the action. He would sit in, actually, this man did the action. He goes, he'd sit in the corner and he didn't say anything. And as I said to you in other times, that I had this image of this great saint in the corner knitting socks. I've told you that joke before. But yet, the distorter of the truth, because he had no guts to speak against the community, he goes, no, no, we don't speak up. No, don't say nothing. Humility. St. Eustin never spoke. St. Eustin Bojovich was firstly exiled. He was persecuted. And he would preach against that. And, they, and the nuns, when we went there, they told us that when he was in church preaching, the windows would rumble, the windows would shake. He was so powerful and speaking against this heresy, which he called the heresy of heresies, and he wrote a book about it. So see how there's distortion. Anyway, I said to this person, look, with, with respect, I'm only a lay person, you're an abbot of the monastery, but I'm not going to let you to go and say those things because you're distorting the truth. Anyway, he ordered the monks not to talk to us, so we were like, in, like no one was talking to us anymore. So it was obviously we weren't welcomed. So we packed our bags and went to say goodbye to the abbot. And the abbot came out, and I'm not exaggerating. 
His face was very black, very dark, and um, this is not joking. He had one eye was up and one eye was down. He was like that. His whole face had mangulated because I said to him that that's not correct. And I said, I'm surprised that you're saying such things because you're scandalising people and making people to believe that there should be no protest, there shouldn't be any worry, there shouldn't, no one should care about this ecumenism that's going on in the church today. So that's not right. And he was distorted because that's what happened, like the guy in Manathos when I was once. I was with some priests there, I was a lay person, and there was... Um, they were um, very pious priests, they were Greek priests, they came to venerate, they weren't from, the mon from Mount Athos, but we, they came to venerate, and, um, and we were just waiting there for the bus to take us up to the main part there to give our passports, whatever, and we were sitting down and there was a, an Orthodox priest, and he started to tell me there about that Francis of Assisi is a saint. I said, Francis of Assisi, again, I was only a layperson, but I'm, so, I'm sorry, Father, Francis of Assisi is not a saint. Then I started telling him, because St. Seraphim is Rob, and this, and St. Theophan the Cruz, and all these people said that he's, not only he's not a saint, he's deceived. Anyway, this poor man, he started to become agitated, because these people don't like, see, they're Orthodox priests, but they don't, they're still mixed up in their heresies of, with the West. And he started to, to shake a bit and he got up abruptly. And in Manathos, they don't have electricity a lot of times. So when we were in this little, little um, cafe, you know, like a little cafe thing, they, they had gas light. It was a gas light. So they've got a little tube that goes to a gas bottle and that's how they light up. It wasn't lit at the time. So, and it was a bit low anyway. So this guy was getting, became agitated. He put on his hard hat and he got up abruptly and he smashed the light and went all over himself and he was wiping all off his beard. He was all blood cutting himself. And I said to the priest, one of the pious priests, very strong pious priest, Orthodox Greek priest there, and I said to him, oh, look, you know, I think I'm the cause of that. And he says to me in Greek, Kalanapathi, meaning serve him right. Because he was speaking blasphemies. In this book, he writes, the present studies were written for the defence of the truth and that, that is being attacked by the Protestants who reject unwritten sacred scripture and the visible church of Christ and accept only the written teaching of Christ and the apostles. In other words, as they, as they do today, they say, we only believe in the Bible. We only believe what Christ says and what the apostles say. We don't believe in anything else. And they are saying, that's not correct because we have tradition as well. The book is addressed to Orthodox Christians to protect them from the proselytizing activities of the Protestants because back in those days, a lot of Protestants were coming into, the, into Greece and trying to convert the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, to their religion, like they still do a lot of them. Um, he wanted, he says, quote, to prove false all their arguments, to criticise their errors and to defend the truths which are being attacked. So he spoke up against all their heresies. And he said there, according to the Protestants, St. Nectarius writes, and this is the last thing, churches are necessary. Unnecessary are those who govern the church. In other words, in other words for them, bishops are necessary, priests are necessary. Unnecessary are the mysteries. The unnecessary are the traditions. Unnecessary are the interpreters of the scriptures, the Holy Fathers. Those who purify and sanctify souls through confession and remission, they don't believe that priests have got the right to do that. They don't believe any of that. Unnecessary also are offerings and memorial services for the reposed, for, for the dead, to pray for them. They don't believe in that. 
prayers of supplications for the living address to the mother of God and to the saints, in other words, the intercessions of the mother of God and the saints for us, they don't believe in that. Also, they reject every external form of worship, deny the holiness and power of the cross, reject the veneration of holy icons, of the holy relics, and generally speaking, reject all that our Orthodox Church reveres and respects as holy and sacred. They are against everything. And the topics that he covers in there, where he talks, he actually does the topics, which is concerning the mysteries, he talks about that, concerning the mother of the Lord, concerning the precious cross, concerning the saints, concerning holy icons, concerning holy relics, concerning holy memorial service, concerning beeswax and oils as, and oil as offerings, and concerning incense, concerning fasts, because I don't believe in fasts, concerning the dedication of holy virgins to God, for people to dedicate themselves in monasticism, in other words, and etc. So St. Nectarius completely exposes them and says that those things that they're doing are wrong. And that what those things, sorry, that those things that they're teaching are wrong. And he said to the Orthodox, be careful, beware, beware, and do not believe these things. Yet, as I said before, people send their children to Protestant schools, pay them, and the children are learning these things. I remember I had an argument with, some, with a, a couple. They said to me that we send our children to Anglican school. I said, well, why are you doing that for? You're Orthodox? You're... They were actually Orthodox. They were not only Orthodox, they were against ecumenism. They were strong Orthodox. They said, yes, we have to speak up and this and that, whatever. They even did missionary work, giving books out and things like that. And they said, but they send their children to Anglican school. I said, what would you do that for? He goes, because I want to. I said, but that's not right. I go, that, that's hypocritical. How can you be against ecumenism, against heresy, but at the same time you're sending your children to Protestant schools? I said, just out of interest, I wasn't a priest then, by the way, I said, can you um, bring me your child's religion book? Just interested to see. Just, well, I just want to see something. So they brought me the book and I opened it up just randomly. And where did it open up? Happened up there and it says, not that the bread and wine become body and blood, but are symbolic. And I said to them, well, look at this. Is this what you're teaching? Is that what your children are learning at the school that you're sending them paying big money? And he looked at it and they went into denial. Never forgave me, that man. Never forgave me. Right up to the time that he passed away, never forgave me. Because... Um, Saint Nicodemus says even if you're going to say something to someone which is the truth that I want to believe it your duty is to say it with, with love properly which I did I begged him for, many, for, for a long time for years I actually told him please don't send your children there and Saint Nicodemus says if they don't believe you and they hate you after great is your reward in heaven he says little reward are for those who help someone who you know are going to listen to you he goes, there, you don't get much of a reward. It's good that you tell them, but they're going to listen to you anyway. That's okay. But he said, great is your reward when you tell someone something that you, that you strongly believe probably will not believe you. And those to Orthodox Christians, and those people, if they end up hating you, you can't hate them back, but God will reward you because you opened yourself up to this great problem where those people don't like you anymore. Okay, we didn't have time to finish everything, so that's okay. Um, just a quick question, just quickly, one minute, two minutes. Anyone? Yes? How many volumes did you write about the, um, uh, why the schism 
Well, that was a two-volume set of 500 and something pages. Didn't, didn't mince words, did he? See, today, people are using the word, a lot of, a lot of the clergy are gutless. That's, that's the truth. So therefore, they say they hide under this thing called humility. So what they do is they say, Christ said we have to be humble. And to be humble, you don't speak. You don't say anything. And that's really good because you, people can still think you're a holy person. No one's going to hate you because you're not going against their sins. And yet, and yet, you're doing the worst sin of them all because you're not talking the truth to the people. That's the priest's job. And if the priest can't do it, doesn't want to do it, then he should not continue. You see? That's the thing. That's not judgment. That's the fact. That, 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 that's a fact. The demons today sit, sit here and lock. They lock the mouths of a lot of people not to speak. Saint Nectarius was persecuted and hated because he spoke. Saint Cosmas was hanged by the Turks because he went against the Jews in that, in, in, living in those times and saying that he said to the Orthodox Christians, you will not sell your, um, you will not sell your, go to the markets on Sunday. But the Jews would close their shops on Saturday and open on Sunday and the Greeks wouldn't go and they were obstructing the business. So at that time, he was killed. So he, and he knew that. Christ was, was crucified because he spoke the truth against the Jews at the time. All the saints that were persecuted was because of that. The, all the prophets, this notion, this thing of no, that's not what a priest is fun. A priest is to do weddings and, and talk to the children, give them a, a caramel, like a little um, lolly now and then for Easter, give them an, an egg, which is usually not boiled properly, and then that's, um, and then that's, what, the, that's what the priest's function is. The priest has many functions, and one of them is to speak the truth to the people in a proper way, enlighten them. I mean, I'm speaking a bit more rough with you people because you know you've been coming for years. But if I was in a church where it was new people, people that don't know much, I wouldn't be speaking like I'm speaking now. What I would do there is still try and say the same thing, but in a more gentle way, but still saying the truth. Anything else? Yes? If you know that a church is, whether it's your, one of the churches you're talking about or another church which you know is not recognised by the Orthodox Church, it's a schismatic church, it's not right, and you know that um, you've got to say the truth because those people could be going somewhere where they're not even, they're baptising their children, they're not even being baptised because the priests are defrocked or they're not even priests. So therefore, you, you know, and it could be your relatives, but then by saying something, they're going to hate you. But as St. Nicodemus says, you've still got to say it. You've got to say gently, with a lot of prayer, gently, and say to them, look, this is not right. You, all you've got to do is say it once or twice. That's it, and leave them alone and let their conscience work. You don't have to go and try and force them. It's not going to work. You just put the thought in them. Just say, that's not correct. That's not a proper church. 
Okay, so let's stand up. Through the praise of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, and save us. Amen.